0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday, January 3rd, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Um, he of the $200 seafood platter. <laughs> Tell that story again, Rev, okay. if you don't mind. I mean, we won't, we won't call the the place. I told my wife the story. She says, no way. That's why they drink a lot now. I'll be with Rev, no. Rev, Rev drinks high in no. bourbon. And um, sometimes that can um, manipulate <laughs> Not, the cost of going out to eat. But um, you funny. went down there prepared to pay a pretty expensive price to eat seafood yeah. along the South Carolina coast. There's a premium there sure. that you expect.
1: Understood. Um, yeah, went to, uh, and like I said, I don't want to necessarily say where, but most places are kind of like this, you know, in that genre, I suppose. But, yeah, right, it was New Year's Eve, made the trip down uh, to the coast to enjoy a seafood dinner, and it was, now, now, now keep in mind, it was two platters, all right? There were two. It was me and my wife. Two platters. We had a cup of soup and a sweet tea to drink. No bourbon, no liquor, nothing like that. That was it. No salads, no appetizers other than the soup, anything like that, okay? So the bill, after you added a, a reasonable tip, was $160. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, that, real crazy.
0: I'm thinking 100 bucks yeah. on the high end, but yeah. I mean, I'm thinking 100 bucks, And that would, a that, that would be a splurge. That would be a splurge, no question about it. It's certainly now when you turn my age, you start splitting the entree. <laughs> well, you, you start dividing the entree up and maybe get a couple of appetizers or something. Well, and I had... Bargain the, shopping.
1: Well, and I think there uh, there were three scallops on my meal and there mm. were three of the crab-stuffed shrimp on her meal. So, you know, it really be kind of hard to split that. Now, I will say... It was excellent. The food was superb.
0: I, I was thinking Tasted about what, great. What, what you told me nope, yesterday. No complaints. About I, I get that. it. I mean, I understand it. Except one hundred fifty bucks, right, is quite the. Um, I mean, for fried seafood along the South Carolina coast, that's a um, that's a pretty expensive yep. expensive price. My dad bought a piece of property in a place in North Carolina called Soco Gap. Soco Gap is between Maggie Valley and Cherokee. And we built a house kind of overlooking the mountains. And it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful view. Um, cold, too cold for me, uh, but beautiful nonetheless. And um, the guy that owned the business down at the bottom of the mountains is what I was told. Um, I, I couldn't tell if we're at the bottom, top, or middle of the mountain. But they told me we're at the bottom of the mountain. Um, so anyway, the guy that owned the business, owned that property that my dad, purchased and built a home. Um He would always tell me, and it was as if he'd never told me before, he'd always tell me when I'd go in to get, uh, you know, a six-pack of beer or a Diet Pepsi or whatever it is we're getting at a convenience store, he would always tell me, you know, I gave you, Daddy, that land. I said, what do you mean? You didn't give us that land. He said, I gave you the land. I sold you that view. And I think that's what the people down where, and I know where you were, And it's quite the view. Oh, sure I mean, there's no doubt about that. Yep. So I think I think they gave you the seafood. Mm-hmm. I think they charged you 150 bucks for that view of the Great Atlantic <laughs> Ocean. Um, I will say this: um, as a result of, uh, I was down there with a nor'easter hit, and normally you, you have a lot of warning about a hurricane, and you pay close attention, and you're monitoring, and you're you're, you're fastening the hatches, and you're getting out of dodge, and you're doing all these things. The nor'easter Snuck up on us, so to speak, and I was down there, and I told you, I said, "Rev, I've never been anything, i would never been on the coast with a storm of that severity or intensity, and I wanted out. I mean, I didn't <laughs> yike it at all." So I began looking up and down the coast where I am at some of the sand dunes, and I'm telling you, I am sure of this. I'm not sure when, where, how, but I'm sure that at some point in time, in the next fifty or sixty years the good Lord in heaven is going to reclaim some of the property that what I'll call real estate cowboys have decided to build on and develop. I'm convinced of that. Is the ocean rising? Yes. Is it man-made climate change driving the oceans rising? I don't have a clue. I, I, I couldn't begin to tell you how to, how to start a conversation regarding that, but I'm convinced, and I've talked to some old timers down there. Now, when I say old timers, remember the earth is multiple billions of years old, so an old timer being 75 or 80, who has seen a lot of summers and, and springs come and go, you know, at the at the coast, um, he, you know, to, to, a, to a man or woman, they all agree that the ocean's rising. I mean, I remember when it was this, and now it's this, and I remember when that never happened, and now it does. Now, now once again, they're highly skeptical. You ready? They're highly skeptical of man-made climate change. They don't believe that man is in control of that. They believe it's a God in heaven and the cyclical nature of our climate. Um, Not the weather, but our cyclical nature of the ocean rising, of the ocean falling. Um, Is it a million years of rising? I don't know. Is it a million years of rising followed by a million years of falling? I don't know. But I do believe that in the next 50 or 75 years, some people are going to deal with more frequent occurrences of flooding and washouts and should have built homes there should have developed and, uh, and, and, um, you know, built roads and bridges into those places we're going to have, but there's no doubt about it. The last catastrophic hurricane that we had would have been Hugo, mean uh, that was catastrophic. We're going to have another one. i mean I hope and pray. It doesn't happen, but it is. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. There's going to be another four or five category four or five hurricane to hit the grand strand at some point in time in the future. Um, when only God knows um, what the consequences are going to be. I think some of the real estate cowboys are going to learn a hard lesson, and people who want to get closer and closer and closer to the ocean are going to pay a price for building and developing in places that the good Lord in heaven never intended to build, built or or de- or develop. And that's the price of us. So I think they gave it the seafood. I just think they charge $150 for the view. Now, I think, um, I think now do you feel better?
1: Uh, well, a little bit, okay, actually. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but I'll, it, it's worth to note that when I looked at the itemized you know, list, you know the seafood, of course, and the, the meal was expensive. Um, but the taxes and fees, I mean, that was, I think, at least $15 of that. Look at the spectacular view fee. Yeah, <laughs>
0: probably so. <laughs> that's what it was. I mean, they don't yeah. call it that, but that's what it is, a tourism tax. And a hospitality tax. Speaking of taxes, and I'm issuing a challenge. If anybody on city council wants to come into these friendly confines and explain why you did what you did, the door is open. And I mean that sincerely. I'm not into gotcha journalism. I'm not into, um, you know, stabbing someone in the back. But to pass an ordinance that allows the city to collect money that the public never agreed to give is egregious. I'm sorry. It's egregious. It just ain't right is what I like to say. So I'm going to give you a day or two to kind of stumble in here, mosey in here and explain yourself as you see fit. But the program should have been an opt-in. They've got a roundup, Josh. They've got a roundup. I you know, when, you know, when you go to the grocery store and they say, you want to round up and give to the March of Dimes or a roundup and give to the, to the children's hospital. And you say yes or no, um, I mean, I've always felt that charity should be voluntary. I, I get you got to deal with a grocery store. I'd rather charities not roll that way. I mean, don't put me on the spot, man. Groceries are expensive enough anyway. Don't make me say no to 67 cents for, ch- you know, children who need attention. I mean, there- there's no doubt about it. Let me volunteer to do that. Well, the city of Florence, in its infinite wisdom, um, decided to put an opt-in program in place, Josh, in other words, when you go to the store, excuse me, when you pay your water bill. It's an opt-out program. Uh, well, uh, stick with me you for go, a okay, second. I'm, right. I'm, I'm being misleading on oh, purpose. Oh, 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 I got you. Okay. Um, <laughs> see, you already.
1: Sorry. Well, let me do you so. I, I mean,
0: because <laughs> yeah. I wanted you just at the end, you know, right. with the Smothers Brothers, man. I, mean, I got you. you know, one, one, one I one was with you. One passed away, 86 years old, <laughs> while yeah, we I were off the, uh, off the air. No, but Josh, Rev's right. I mean, they have a opt-out program. Um, it should have been an opt-in program. I mean, I was trying to be misleading on purpose, but it should be a program where when you pay your water bill, if you want to round up to the next dollar, then you call the city, you go to the website and say, hey, place my account in that program. Not what they did, Josh. They put you in that program. And now to Rev's point, you got to opt out. If you don't opt out, they're going to confiscate another X number of um, cent over the years' dollars from your account, to pay people's water bill who can't keep up. I mean, they can't pay. They don't explain to me or anybody else who decides who legitimately can't keep up or not. I mean, what what stops me from, what stops Rev? I mean, Rev spent too much on uh, seafood. He doesn't have (laughs) enough money to pay his water bill. They got this program. Rev can't pay his water bill. He puts his name, name in the hopper and the city pays his water bill i mean he's rev needy he paid a buck 50 for seafood you see where i'm headed Mm -hmm. i mean it's just egregious it's totally irresponsibly egregious if you're a big government liberal i get it i mean you want government to have more and more control the way they garner more and more of that control is to take your money but but if you are a city of florence or i guess county i mean you don't have to be in the city we don't have a county water department or a city water department when i got to council in 2004 One of the things that dawned upon me um, was the city had bought the county's—the city had always had a water system. They purchased the county's water system prior to my time uh, or by being elected to county council in 2004. I never understood that. I mean, water is a revenue generator. You need to maintain control of a water system. And now the county and county residents find themselves at the mercy of a city water department and a city of— Florence government that I think, and I'll go on the record, I think they've been reckless and irresponsible with what they've done with water relating. Here, here's the two, uh, I, I, more, this is probably more important than uh, opting in or opting out. They failed to address the repairing of critical infrastructure like water in deference to libraries and parks and you know, performing art centers. I get it. I mean, I understand that as to the quality of life, but we need better water. I mean, I, I read last night on some of the social media conversations and commentaries that um, have they fixed the brown water? Um, I'll give an example. Talking about going to the beach, my wife carry carry carries her few delicate items to to Georgetown County to wash. I mean, she doesn't wash some of the some of the um, I don't know. We she did not have a lot of high end clothes, but she's got a couple that a bit dainty, um, and she likes to carry those to the to the beach to wash because the water is so much better um, down there. So instead of worrying about opting in and opting out, let's repair the water system. Let's invest funds to repair the water system. Let's give the citizens of Florence a better quality water. And I'm not here to throw anybody under the bus, but I'm not shying away from the, from this conversation. I've been real careful about respecting them and what they were going to do to address some of the issues regarding water. But they chose to, once again, implement an opt-out plan. Your money will go to someone not paying their water bill, whether you choose to or not, if you don't opt out of the plan. And I heard someone say, well, it's only $11 at $0.88 cent a year. Doesn't matter if it's $0.88 cent a year. It's your money. The money doesn't belong to the city but they're confiscating extra funds to pay people's people's water bills who, for whatever reason, can't pay their water bill themselves. So I'm going to leave it there. And and I'm going to offer an opportunity for anybody from the city who wants to come in and explain to our listeners, your constituents, why you felt that was in the best interest of the city of Florence because ultimately that's your responsibility. Your responsibility is not to the poor and downtrodden. I mean, it is but it's also to the wealthy and well-to-do. I mean, you have a responsibility as a government agency to treat everybody the same and fairly. And when you're finding people who are down on their luck and people who are doing a little better in life, it's not your job to settle that score. And governments at every turn feel obligated to be the socioeconomic leveler. And I'm just, I mean, it's egregious. That's the only word I can come up with. So, so there the offer stands and I love someone from the city to take me up on it. Josh, I may get with you during the break and give you a couple of names and numbers to see if we can get somebody in here tomorrow or Friday, not to defend their position, but to explain their position and long-term, what are we going to do to make the water better in the city and County of Florence?
1: And I would like to ask this unrelated to the roundup program. Um, the water bill at my place has gone just up and up and up. I thought about that when I, I did the payment for this month.
0: I was like, really? How did it get this high? I mean, government has government needs revenue to meet its obligations. That's just what I'll tell you. I mean, they're in the service industry. They don't sell a widget, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're selling you water, I guess, in this case. They're selling you trash pickup. They're selling you public safety. I get that. Those are services, but, but government has enormous needs. They have to have revenue to service those enormous and ever-growing, and at times, irresponsible needs. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, one of the great challenges in my life has been the Clemson-South Carolina rivalry, and I've tried to really develop a more mature and, and grown-up approach, Rev. You're kind of new at this. I mean, mm-hmm. you're not a lifer. God bless you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I got accused yesterday of turning into another Gamecock at SEC homer at the end of the show when I said there's only four football leagues in America that really matter. And we got a 12 team college football playoff around the bend. uh, Well, later this year, I guess uh, now that we've begun 2024. And I said, the only leagues in America that matter are the NFC, the AFC, the SEC, the big 10. A couple of folks sent me messages. Ah, man, I thought you'd got more mature in your older (laughs) age about being so vindictive about the rivalry or not. When, when, when Oregon and Washington joined the Big Ten and Oklahoma and Texas join the SEC, tell me I'm wrong. I mean, t- tell me there's another league in football, pro or college, that really matters. I didn't say the Gamecocks or, or, or you know, uh, college football supremacy or, or you know, I, I never said that. I'm talking about, we were talking about conferences. We're talking about leagues um the NFL rules I mean there's no doubt about it the NFL rules supreme college football is an afterthought in the majority of these major television markets Rev and I know this to be the case we get frustrated with ESPN radio and their lack of coverage on things we're interested in it's all about the NFL i got up yesterday morning turned to ESPN radio down to the beach um the day after the college football playoff you know what they're talking about the buffalo bill Miami dolphin game and the Dallas Cowboys could win. the I mean, it's, it's all about the National Football League. The major media markets are laser-focused on the NFL. So I do stand by that comment that the only relevant football leagues in America, conferences, are the NFC, the National Football Conference, the AFC, the American Football Conference, the Southeastern Conference, and the Big Ten. Everybody else is a bit irrelevant. It doesn't mean that Clemson or Florida State matter. Of course they do. Uh, they're proud programs. They're tradition-rich programs, but they're going to pay a significant price in the long run for not being in. They can't be the NFC or AFC. They're not in the SEC or Big Ten, and the quicker they can address that, the better those two programs' relevancy standing will be in football. So I am maturing <laughs> in, my, in my fandom uh, of Gamecock football and athletics in general but I'm not shying away from something I believe in. And, um, you know, where do we go from here? Don't have any idea. Where does Clemson end up? Don't have any idea. I'm not responsible for making that decision. I know Florida State has filed a lawsuit against the Atlantic Coast Conference. How does that work out? Don't know. Don't have any idea. But I can say this, if you want to be relevant in the not-too-distant future, you better be in the Big Ten or SEC. I'll ask you this, Rev. How many teams in the 12-team playoff next year are likely to be from the SEC or Big Ten? Is it more or less than eight? I mean, that, that would be a fair yeah. question. Is it more or less than eight of the 12 teams in the 12-team playoff next year? Well, if eight of 12 teams, maybe nine of 12 teams, come from two leagues, how are the others relevant? But I mean, that's where we're headed. And, um, and, you know, Clemson finds themselves in a, in a difficult position. It doesn't mean you're less of a fan. It doesn't mean the program's on the on the downward trajectory. It means that you've got a conundrum on your hands, and you better figure out a way to get in one of these two leagues: Big Ten or the Southeastern Conference. Unless some NFL model evolves. I mean, there's some out there that believe, you know, we've only got a five-year run of the SEC Big Ten because the new format, the new model, will be kind of like college, like the NFL. You'll have an NFC Central and an NFC West and an NFC East and an AFC Central and East. We, we may end up there. I don't have any idea. Um, it's, it's quite a, a situation the game that I grew up loving uh, finds itself in. And I'll say this definitively. The people that got us here were all about money and power and control. I mean, it was all about it. It was never about the student-athlete. It was never about doing the right thing. It was never about promoting the game. It was always about staying in control of a revenue-generating monster. And because of that, greed prevailed. And here we are now with a broken system. Uh, The kid went from having no leverage, right, to having all the leverage. I said it, and I'll say it again. I hope we find some place of equilibrium. I don't know if you can do that in the current construct. I don't know if the SEC and Big Ten – can welcome and embrace you know the other what 8 10 schools that matter in college football um, but that's kind of sorta um, where we are and I don't apologize and I, and I am mature in, in my fan or being a fan of the of of the gamecocks in contrast to sharing the same state with my good and fine and decent um, clemson brethren 843 speaking of college 8436610937 I did a lot of reading last night on the the notion that I proposed as somewhat of a um I don't know I tried to make it a conversation point I'm going to get Josh to jump in he's a younger guy we'll take a break and then we'll kind of we'll kind of delve into this I did a lot of reading last night because I said you know that there's some things I can statistically offer up as a more informed opinion than I can something in other words in in, in this corner I got my gut and instinct right. I mean, my gut tells me this. My instinct says this. Uh, In the other corner, I've got statistics and analysis and the facts. Um, The Ivy League graduates about four one-hundredths of one percent of our population every year. I mean, that's how many people in America, it's less than one-tenth of one percent. I mean, that's how many people in America have Ivy League degrees. Um, About 33 percent of government agencies are run, not exclusively— but we could argue directly or indirectly by government, uh, excuse me, by Ivy League graduates. The State Department's about 46%. Um, the DOJ's about 39%. The FBI's about 31%. The CIA's about 29%. But if you kind of round it off, it's about a third. I mean, a third of, and I'm saying elite universities. I think they're 20. I think I counted last night. It might be 18. I think they're 18. You got Ivy League And then you've got about 8 or 10 others that make up these 20 elite universities. UCAL Berkeley would be an elite university. George Washington would be an elite university. Georgetown would be an elite university. The University of Chicago Law would be elite, so to speak. But it's not an Ivy League school. But there's about 20 schools in America. I don't know what percentage of the population graduates from those 20 universities. But the Ivy League is less than one-tenth of 1%. And they control directly and indirectly about 30% of our government and our media. The media is actually a little higher. It surprised me. I would have thought the government was a little bit higher than the media. Um, And you can Google um, how did Ivy Leaguers get in charge of the media. And there's 100 articles out there that walk you through. uh, And you can just put, you know, how is the Ivy League represented in the State Department and the Justice Department and the executive branch? I think right now... Um, I think the Biden administration has seven department heads who are Ivy League graduates. Um, you've got one who's got the double dose of undergraduate UCAL Berkeley law school at Harvard. Mm. Mm. Isn't that the person you won't run to the country, Josh? Somebody who got their undergrad degree from UCAL Berkeley, West Coast liberalism, Woodstock, and then you kind of combine that with the, um, the organized aristocracy of the Ivy <laughs> League. I mean, certainly, Josh. Maybe I mean, don't, 20 years well, ago. I mean, don't, okay, but hold on to that because that's where I want to go because I think there's some data out there. You remember the analogy I've used, and I know we got to take a break. Remember the analogy I've used that the, the great-great-great-grandfather graduated from Harvard and started a business and was the best and brightest And was persistent and stayed after it and dedicated. And all of a sudden, the great-great-great-grandson runs the Corvette in the pool at the Ritz-Carlton. And you wonder, how did this happen? How? Well, I mean, it's it's natural. I mean, it it would be human nature personified. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. I've got a stack here of stories that we'll get to at some point in time. But I've got a theory, and I try to think through some of these theories. And, you know, once again, in one corner, you've got your instinct and what your gut tells you. Um, but but that in my world, that's not good enough at times. I mean, at times it is. My gut says do this. My instinct says do that. Um, but some of these monumental decisions – you go to the bank, and the bank says, hey, man, I get your gut and instinct. I understand that, you're, you're, and, and you've been right more than wrong. But, but I need some data. I need some statistics. I'll give an example. When I built the convenience store in Pamplico, I mean, I just threw the door open at Chase Howard's office and said, I want to be branded. Oh, do you? Okay. Well, my gut tells me this thing will work. Well, I mean, I trust you, but BP won't. I can assure you of that. <laughs> I mean, they want car counts and median income and households and, you know, traffic during the summer. They're going to want a lot of analytics and data. So instinctively, I believe that the Ivy League has, well, let's say elite universities, elite universities have an overweighted impact on our government and media, and it's not good. I would have no problem, Josh, if the government had kind of an overweightedness and the media had an overweightedness if I believe the elite universities were inhabited by the best and brightest and most capable young men and women. I don't buy that now. The majority is legacy and diversity. I mean, do you want to know how you get in an elite university today? You're diverse and and have some sort of legacy issues. Did your grandfather, did your great-grandfather, did they make a contribution to the endowment? Is there a building named after? Do you look this way? Do you sound that way? Do you believe that transgenderism is not, a dysphoria, but rather is something that kids have to deal with and and adjust to and acclimate. How many how many sexes are there, Josh? I mean, you can't be an anti-intellectual, you know, neo Neanderthal and say two, right? I mean, if you say how many, th- this would be an interesting academic exercise, Rev. What if Harvard, on their application, asked a question: How many sexes do you think there are? <laughs> and good old boys said two. Damn. Um, well, I mean, you just tear that application <laughs> that up right. The don't trash. even consider I mean, that's anti-intellectual, right, Josh? Of course. I mean, that that's anti-intellectualism personified. So, so here's what I have found out, and this is random data. I mean, I don't know if there's a correlation here to to the government being in the situation it finds itself in or not. But I just found these kind of interesting. Um, once again, the elite universities. Well, let me back up. The Ivy League makes up less than one tenth of one percent. Of the world's pop of America's population, but they control about somewhere in the neighborhood of a third of the government agencies directly and indirectly, and and the media. That would be okay. I mean, that that would be the ruling class, right? I mean, wouldn't that be the ruling class personified, Josh, when Tucker Carlson or Dan Bongino or the late Rush Limbaugh would talk about the ruling class, the Americanist aristocracy? I mean, isn't that kind of sort of who he's talking about? Yeah. Okay. And if they're capable, we're all good. I mean, right? If they're I the agree. best and brightest, now we're, we're we're probably going to get a good media. We're probably going to get good education. We're probably going to have highly qualified people running the State Department, not not someone who is running the State Department because Hillary Clinton read poetry at his wedding. I mean, that's Jake Sullivan. I mean, Sullivan's an Ivy Leaguer, right? Right. But, but Sullivan's got his prominence and position because he's the smartest guy in the room or he— gained some political favor with the Clintons to the point that Hillary Clinton read poetry at his his wedding. So so, so the point I'm trying to make, I don't think we actually understand how impacted our nation is by this one-tenth of one percent of our population. And I think it's interesting when you begin looking under the hood of who's running the State Department, who's running DOJ, who's running the American media. I mean, it's all the same person. I mean, it's not one guy running from office to office or one lady running from agency to agency, but they're all about the same person. And I believe, Josh, that's why we find ourselves not competently governed. And they've done a good job of creating the narrative of, well, you know how those college dropouts are, those guys that end up hosting radio shows. I mean, They're, um, they're anti-intellectual. The pride of their ignorance is on full display when they say, well, the country shouldn't be run by Ivy Leaguers. So who should, Rosh and Rev and our listeners, who do we trust most to run America? I mean, that's kind of the um the theoretical question of today. We have found the hard way that the, the elites or the graduates from these elite universities who normally have pedigree, but I mean, they normally are there uh, because the father or mother or grandfather or grandmother went there But the criteria now is not to be the best and brightest, but rather the most diverse and have some sort of legacy. That's who's running America. It's not Joe Biden. It was not Donald Trump. Remember the American moment we discussed several weeks back, the funding that Peter Thiel gave some of these young guns who believe in America first as a sustaining political philosophy, and the thing that Trump failed to understand was You know, new sheriff in town doesn't mean all the deputies stop doing what they've always done, and now they're trying to train about 2,500 staffers to be ready to go to Washington and kind of drive home an America First agenda. Do do you believe the majority of those are from Ivy League institutions? That that would be interesting (laughs) to me. You know, of the 2,500 that the America Moment are training and positioning and getting ready to go to Washington in the event Trump wins, where do they come from? What what do they believe in? Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Larry in
1: the PD. Good morning.
2: Good morning, guys. I think that, you know, have you ever had a favorite brand, favorite brand of food or a favorite brand of screwdriver or whatever, and over the years uh, it just started to kind of deteriorate and deteriorate and get worse and worse, and then you kind of realize that the only thing that they had anymore was their name? I think that's what's happened with – with uh, the Ivy League, you know, the truth of the matter is if if you take people who only make 1,500s on their SATs, um, college doesn't really have to do much to take those people and make them pretty good, you know, so you have a really high standard for admission, it really almost didn't even matter what you taught them back in the day, because all colleges kind of taught out of the same book, it was reading, writing, you know, calculus and engineering and and you know neuroscience and all the things that matter. And uh, if you take the brightest children and you teach them those topics, they will become the best neurosurgeon. They'll become the best engineers. But they don't do that anymore uh, because they're kind of like they're kind of like Sears Craftsman. You know, when when you could only get Sears Craftsman at Sears, it meant something. When I walked into Kmart and saw a set of Craftsman screwdrivers, I said, Ah, right, it's over. <laughs> it's over, and it was because they didn't protect their brand. They just traded on it. And I think that a lot of these Ivy League schools, they didn't protect their brand. They're just trading on it now, and they're, they're resting on their laurels, and they're using it as a, as a way to affect social change instead of raising the best and brightest. They're very hard to get into, but if you look into the graduates at Ivy League schools, they're almost all 4.0 graduates, because once you're there, they just give you A's and everything. Because they're perpetuating a brand, and the truth of the matter is, if you take the best and brightest, you, you, your odds are no matter what you teach them, they'll come out being pretty good, unless you don't teach them anything. And I think that's what's happened.
0: But Larry, but, but Larry, and, know and the, the craftsman analogy—I mean, believe it or not—that was my analogy while you were talking. I'm thinking craftsman tools, so um, that's where I come from. So, so, but but what? So, what do we do about this? Got a couple of minutes? What do we do about? What if the government, what, what if there's a lobbying effort that says, hey, mechanics, I know our tool's not as good as it was, but we've created policy that says in this particular business or industry, you can't use anything but a craftsman.
2: Well, again, successful branding, right? That's, that's what they've done is they've, they've, they've traded on their name, and the only thing, frankly, that, that really can change it is going to be their track record. Because eventually these people are going to tear the world up, and we're going to blame them for it. And we're going to realize that just, I mean, at this point, if if I said I was the CEO of Sears, you go, well, that ain't saying nothing, you know, because you ran it in the ground. And it won't be long that these brands will become jokes. And at that point, you know, you won't want a degree from Harvard because it won't mean anything. And eventually they're going to get there. I mean, we're not there now. But, but I think eventually we get there. I mean, listen to how we're talking about it. Fifteen years ago, if you have said, do you want your children to go to an Ivy League school? I'd have said, heck yeah. That would be wonderful. They could write their own ticket. And they probably still could today, but now I don't want them to go because
3: I know what they're being taught.
0: Interesting. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Um, hang on to that because I want to stay. I think there's a very interesting and important conversation to be had centered around how impactful or effective the Ivy League schools have been at creating a brand and <laughs> the brand kind of outliving its existence, if that makes any sense. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Want to shift gears for just a second and go to Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz for the first time this year. Good morning, Ryan, and happy new year. Hey, good morning. How are you, sir? So it's a new year. But it seems to me we're dealing with one of the same issues that we always are, and that is a government shutdown and a debt ceiling. What is the latest there, Ryan?
4: Right. So we have this first uh, deadline of January 19th, where uh, uh, certain parts of the government will be up for a funding debate. So we're looking at military construction. We're looking at the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Energy Department, transportation and housing and urban development. And essentially, the Republicans and Democrats are going to pass have to pass these individual appropriation spending bills. Uh, Then they'll have to negotiate them and then send them back to both the House and the Senate. Uh, and try to pass them there on a bipartisan basis. So right now the bills look pretty different from both the House and the Senate with conservatives in the House trying to get more conservative priorities through on that side, whereas the Senate's probably passed them on more of a bipartisan basis, and we'll just have to see if they're able to come up with some type of agreement. But right now I think the big focus is trying to
0: figure out what the top-line spending numbers are going to be. Ron, when do we think we'll have clarity? I mean, nobody knows, but when, I mean, has the debate progressed better than it normally does. I guess that's that, that would be the only way I know to ask the question.
4: Yeah, I don't think it really has been too much different. I, I think this is going to be a very different fight considering the fact that we have never seen Speaker Johnson in a negotiation like this. So I'm curious to see how that's going to go uh, for House Republicans. But I think we'll get a little bit more clarity next week when they
0: come back on January 9th. Well explained. Ron, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Hey, you too, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Josh, you acted like you wanted to jump in here in the last uh, few segments, uh, and and I just didn't allow. I mean, you know, just keep running <laughs> in my mouth. I got another something or other um, to say. So let, let, let's go through some of the um some of the realities because here's where I think we are. And, and Larry, I mean, Larry uses it, kind of an interesting example in Craftsman too. I don't want to throw Craftsman under the bus, but there was a day they had a standard. And it was an expectation a mechanic had or a handyman of that tool. Um, they decided to be something different. And the expectation didn't catch up as quickly as they chose to be something different. But eventually, and I think we're there now, that when you buy a Craftsman tool, you don't believe you're buying the same one that you got exclusively at Sears. Um, having been in the manufacturing business, tools were a big part of our life. And there was kind of a, a sweet spot. Um, the Snap-on Mac tool truck was too expensive. We mistreated and lost tools too much to pay that sort of money for high-quality, high-end tools. Um, we didn't want junk. We didn't want to go to the flea market, you know, or some of these. Um, we, we were famous for saying those crap crap made in China. Uh, you know, we wanted a good American-made tool, and Craftsman was kind of um. I mean, it's the place we settled, and I don't, I don't want to say settled in a, in a bad way. Um. But then the tools became a little inferior. I mean, the price stayed the same. The inferior quality was c- kind of like, wow, what happened here? Must have been a bad batch. I mean, you get the benefit of the doubt for a while because you've created this brand and brand awareness. And all of a sudden, one breaks and somebody in the building says, that tool just ain't is damn good. I mean, something's happened. It's just not as good. Well, then Craftsman spends another year or two or three saying, yes, they are. I mean, I know we're selling them in more places because everybody was in uh, they were in such demand. Everybody wanted that tool. You know, um, Sears couldn't get enough. We couldn't sell enough. We had to expand our, our, um, our, our not marketing and branding, but rather our manufacturing. We had to make more tools. And all of a sudden, now they're looked at fundamentally different. I mean, the mechanic and handyman will look at a Craftsman tool fundamentally different. But that took a while. What, what if you add in this reality? What if everybody was a stakeholder at Craftsman? Who worked with tools in other words when you bought a tool you're helping to fund your retirement when you went and purchased a craftsman nine sixteenth wrench um, you were subsidizing you know the um the entitlement system of which you are a uh, a part of you're kind of self-funding um you're greasing the skid that you enjoy the benefit of somewhere down the road that's where i think the ivy league has gotten well i think that's where the elite universities Have gotten. And I think we include George Washington and Georgetown and UCal Berkeley and a couple of others um, included in that 20 school elite university um, category. I went back and looked um, yesterday. I told Rev. Rev, during the break, said, What about these endowments? The Ivy League alone, forget UCal Berkeley and George Washington and, and Georgetown, the Ivy League universities alone have about $150 billion, with a B, $150 billion in endowment. mean, uh, they're avoiding about $10 billion in taxes a year. J.D. Vance offered a piece of legislation last year that said let's tax the endowments of the Ivy League universities just as we would tax capital gains on any other business, man or woman. Now, but they're exempt because they're 501c3s and they've categorized some of the uh, profits and proceeds in a certain way and, and category. That's $2 million for every undergraduate. Hmm. I mean, it's kind of stupid. Yeah. So so, wow. so they've amassed, so I, I told you before the break, the Ivy League schools, the eight Ivy League schools got more grant money from the federal government than 18 states in America. How do you break that grab? You see where I'm headed? I mean, they build a big monster of a machine, and it kind of self-deals and it self-serves. And it self-perpetuates. It's a little bit of a revolving door. Let's read this again. You ready? Ivy League affiliations run deep for University of Pennsylvania President Amy Gutman, who graduated from Harvard before teaching and serving as provost at Princeton, marrying Columbia University law professor, and raising a daughter who go going to teach chemistry at Princeton. I mean, how do you break that? I mean, if they're getting all the money, they've got all the money, they've got all the power, they control the media narrative. I mean, I think, you know, craftsman tool is in decline. There's no denying that. But craftsman tool are not living, breathing human beings that are self-serving. I mean, that wrench is made of what that wrench is made of, right? And if the alloy or or tensile strength of the wrench it and of the quality craftsman was 25, 30 years ago, I mean, the wrench can't fix that. There's no personality to the wrench. The wrench can't get in a car, plane, or bus and go to Washington and lobby for better benefit or more power or influence. I mean, I get the analogy, and I accept that one was something. Now it is something. I think the Ivy League was something. Now it is something, but it's still operating under the premise that it is what it was. And they've garnered so much influence. What if Craftsman had run Snap on Mac and every other wrench manufacturer out of business? And the only choice was Craftsman. I mean, you know the wrench is as good as it was. Same price, sorry, your wrench. But they monopolized the market. There ain't no more wrenches to buy. There used to be better tools. There used to be not as good tools. But Craftsman did such a good job of, of cornering the marketplace. There is no other wrench manufacturer made. So you kind of stuck with Craftsman. Are we stuck with the Ivy League? Are we stuck with the elite universities? And if not, what will it take, Josh, to get us to a better place?
5: It's a good question. I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I agree with the premise of what you're saying where I think, you know, maybe a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, or however long ago when these Ivy league schools started popping up, there was probably a big difference in IQ of people going there and your average person. And, and, you know, you get this brand, you know, you hear about Harvard and, and there was never once a moment in my life where I thought I could go to someplace like that. But now you, you, like you said you start paying attention you start seeing all the the kinds of people they're churning out and you're kind of like hmm i don't know i don't know about this anymore
0: the, and and the point i'm trying to make is i believe that harvard i'll use harvard i mean would harvard be the most known of the ivy league schools harvard and yale i would yale? say so i, I think mean, I, so i mean i think 16 presidents went to harvard if i'm not mistaken i think um the the overwhelming majority of supreme court justices went to to Harvard, I mean, it would be the most elite of the elite, so to speak. Right. Um, if, if, if Harvard has such an enormous influence on our culture and society, but now instead of, to Josh's point and, and to Larry's point, instead of the person making 1500 I mean, what if you went to, what, what if you applied to Harvard? I mean, you're valedictorian of your class. Sumter High School, Orangeburg High School, uh, West Florence, South Florence, Wilson, you're valedictorian. You've made 1570 on the SAT. I mean, you're, you're, you're a bit exclusive in your academic achievement. Um, and Harvard sends you an application, or you ask for an application to Harvard. And as part of the answering questions, you say you believe there are two genders and there's a God in heaven. I mean, do they, do they is that more important to them now in the name of diversity, inclusion, uh, I, I guess, elitism? I mean, is that more important now than the SAT score or the, the academic achievement? I think it is.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't the think there's any question
0: to that. I think the person that made 1250 on the SAT, plenty smart. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but not as deserving as the person that made 1500 But if the person that says, as part of their entrance, exam- or entrance essay says, hey, I-, I think God's a fallacy, I think you know chromosomal science is a farce, and I won't end this joint because I want a job at the State Department or I want a job at CNN. I think that person gets the nod, and the person who made fifteen hundred, who say, "Hey, I think this um, gender dysphoria is a mental illness. I think God in heaven will hold us accountable at some point in time. I think that that name, that high achiever, that practical, reasonable person." probably gets name thrown in the trash and ends up at South Carolina Clemson and never ends up with the opportunity to affect change in our media or in our our, um, our administrative agencies within the federal government. That's the argument I'm trying to make. I mean, I don't know that I'm articulating it as clearly as it's in my head, but that's the argument I'm trying to make. It's almost like the kid that says, I believe gender dysphoria is a mental illness, and I believe there's a God in heaven, and I believe accountability will reign supreme at some point in time, I don't think that kid gets a chance to go to Harvard. And if that kid doesn't get a chance to go to Harvard, what are the odds he affects major change in our government or major change in our media? And that's what I guess we're arguing kind of the monolith, the cathedral. There's not just a set of academic achievements. There's a set of shared values and dispositions that, that makes up this cathedral. And if you don't kind of play ball, You don't get to play ball. But here's the other part of this. Playing ball is very lucrative. I mean, I know what I believe. But damn. I mean, if I answer this question that gender dysphoria is a mental illness and there's only two sexes, I don't get a chance to play in the game. What am I willing to do or say or be to get a chance to play in the game because playing the game, Rev, is unbelievably lucrative? And you know what I don't worry about when I'm playing in the game? I don't worry about what a fried seafood platter at Merle's Inlet cost. I don't have to worry about it. I mean, that's the enticement. I mean, I think that's where we are in America. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington, good morning. Hey, uh, I, I, I think you're on, on it
6: there for a little bit. But uh, as far as Craftsman snap-on, having haven't had a little bit of experience with that. We would call some of those Craftsman wrenches rubber wrenches because they would wear out. But the thing about a Craftsman, they would replace it, no questions asked, once it wore out. But those snap-ons were made with harder metal, and they would hold up for those repeated uh, adjustments you had to make in high temperature and highly tempered uh, uh, uses. But but that's, that's just my view. But I would be worried at talking about the people rather than tools now which I think the people are, are viewed as tools by these institutions. The, uh, the person that goes in there, what is going to happen to them after they're subjected to this uh, environment for two, three, four years without any uh, support or backup? Uh, how's it going to change their view? What kind of ideas are they going to get? Because I think uh, it's pretty well established that you can, uh, you can uh, pretty much brainwash people, if, uh, at, uh, especially young people at a certain age. Uh, what is the danger of this thing? But that's a lot. But on the other hand, if you wanted to do away with this, uh, I guess, uh, cathedral of uh, higher learning, you could, uh, you, you could save a lot of money. But I would remind you that this is not a new thing. Cotton Mather, who uh, ran the witch trials pretty much in uh, New England, uh, he was a Harvard graduate, I believe, and uh, had a bunch of people hung and tortured to death because of a bunch of uh,
0: teenage girls uh, said they were witches. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Eight four three six six one. O nine three seven is our number. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there.
1: Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning.
7: Hey, morning, fellas. Um, thanks to the guy yesterday that called and corrected me on that um on the guy Netanyahu brother. I appreciate the way you did it because that made me go back and do more homework. And that's the reason for this show to me is to do your homework, I mean, you got different calls on say stuff, and nothing built in concrete, so do your homework, but there is a little controversy on who the family felt like killed Netanyahu. Some felt like it was a German uh German soldier shot him down, but the fact you know um they got as a big hero that helped out his brother getting elected but I was checking out something with the Epstein thing last night on the news, and a lot of the people, like Clinton, Bill Clinton, went went too many times to his island. But I noticed that they all went to different countries. Like they went to China, Japan. I believe a lot of these these are leaders. They all different countries, though. But a lot of them leaders are into the same kind of pedophile rings or whatever it's called. But um, I was thinking about something you said. Now, I'm talking about Bruce, uh, Bruce Springsteen and Patty LaBelle. And the reason that they are there 74 years old, Ken, um, and still performing is because they're being blackballed. It's a certain elite fashion out there that can blackball uh, entertainers to the point where they have to keep working and working and working to make them money. But once they feel like they can't make any more money off them, they are dead, and they can make more money off their dead. But, but trust me, that's the reason why somebody like Bruce Springsteen and Pat LaBelle in their 70s, great-grandparents, that should be home somewhere, living the best life, made all the money they can make, but they're still on, on, on the road touring until they drop dead because they are being blackmailed by certain elite people. If you think about it, the only people that can really cancel you as for as getting cancel culture is if you say anything about a Jew or a LGBTQ. Anybody else, Christians, black, Muslim, they can't cancel you. Only saying something about them two can cancel you. But I was watching, too, about uh, Trump the other night. And they were saying that the first list of the people on the flight log, it was real redacted. A whole lot of marked out on it. And this woman, pretty woman, I believe she was uh, from Texas somewhere, and she was talking to this guy named Durbin. And basically what she was saying was that you you marked out all these names on— the um, on the Epstein plight, um, flight log, but at the same time, anybody that that shared or share or something, any text that Trump did after January the sixth, they were investigated. All the emails were investigated. All the calls were investigated. People they don't know that, but if you shared anything that Trump did after January the sixth, our FBI and CIA tracked every message that, that you sent from then on. I didn't know that, but, but that woman, I think she was from Texas, blonde-haired, pretty woman, and she was drilling that Durban guy, and his name is on that list of going to the Epstein Island. But um, that's all I want to say is that people like Bruce Springsteen out there, 70, 80 years old, still um, perform. He ain't performing because he liked the music or he, he he liked the money. He's being blackballed by a certain elite kind of people. And, and due to all, all the – the, the uh, talented people, all the entertainment they do it because they don't have talent. But the way to make money off people who have talent is to blackball them, so they have to keep working for you. It might sound a little crazy, though, but it it, it happens. Bruce out there about to about, about the kill himself doing tours because he have to. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that. Eight four
0: three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Um, I did see where, I mean, I've not seen, I mean, I would expect we'll see Trump's name in some of the Epstein storyline but I did see yesterday that um Bill Clinton was ID'd as John Doe 36 I mean I don't have any idea why that's the case but John Doe 36 about 170 times in some of the um some of the Epstein files that is part of this this lawsuit that some young girl uh, is filing saying that she was made uh, kind of serve Prince Andrew and some other Dignitaries and uh, I guess some rich and famous, important um, people who felt that. I mean, there's a little bit of that elitist in some of this. Um, in some of this story, I guess the better question, it's not how many flights went to Epstein Island with Bill Clinton on. The easier question would be how many flights went to Epstein Island that Bill Clinton was known. I mean, that seems to be a um an easier answer. He and Bill Gates kind of hanging out, doing their thing on Epstein Island. I'll just say this, and I'll steadfastly defend this until the day I take my last breath. If you are a Democrat who has ever voted for a Clinton and you question the morality or the virtue of a Trump voter, you are as big a hypocrite as the politics of America has ever seen. I mean, you just saw her. Um, you know, you can call Trump, whatever you choose to call Trump, you can categorize him in a lot of different, you know, ways, but, but if you are a Democrat or if you're anybody, an independent and, and you accuse the Trump voter of not having integrity or virtue or ethic or morality, and you ever voted for Bill or Hillary, you just accept the fact that you are a total and complete Hypocrite. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning.
8: You know what, uh, kid? I would say, when you start talking about these people that are running the government, and you know, you're talking about the Ivy League guys, I would say that uh, where we're making the mistake is, and I don't think you are, but a lot of people are, we keep thinking people like you and I, that think the way we do. We keep thinking that they're doing, that they're failing, and they're not failing. They're they if you were to line them all up and have they have their big little annual cathedral meeting, it'd be like that on a James Bond movie where you got all the leaders of SPECTER all gathered around, and they're just talking about all of their successes. They are succeeding in exactly what they want to do. They are not failing. They're failing, they're failing the American citizens, but that is their goal. And, you know, and until we quit thinking left, right, Democrat, Republican, gay, straight, all nine yards, and start thinking as American and standing up to these power elites that want to control and rule us, they're always going to be daggone screwing us all. They're screwing anybody that voted for Biden just as hard as they're screwing us. But some of those poor fools just don't see it. And I had a client of mine that was at the movie theater to show you how they're succeeding. There's a movie coming out called Civil War. And guess who was between, and guess who the bad guys are? Let's just put it to you this way. All the, all the bad guys are wearing bag of hats. And that's the Civil War, and this will be in movie theaters. So they're succeeding, and they're succeeding really well for a lot of people. They're not succeeding with us. And hopefully more and more people are beginning to see what's going on. But no, those guys from Harvard, they're doing a, a bag-up job for, for the cathedral and, and the power elites and the globalists that they're all working for and they've all been brainwashed by.
0: Thank you, Breeze. I'll give an example. Mike DeWine, Republican governor of Ohio, vetoed the Save Adolescents from Experimentation I mean, that, that's pretty bizarre. Remember the moment in the presidential debate when Bill Clinton, excuse me, Bill Clinton, I'm thinking about Epstein Island, um, when, when Chris Christie and Nikki Haley basically said that parents should be in charge of child care and the children's health, that if a child wanted to have a gender-altering surgery, the parent should be in charge of whether the minor child was able to do that or not. I mean, I understand that argument. But but Vivek Ramaswan, no, it was Ron DeSantis. DeSantis said, you can't allow parents to abuse children. I mean, gender dysphoria is a mental illness. You should be treated accordingly. You shouldn't bless the gender dysphoria the minor child is experimenting with. Well, to breeze this point, the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act passed the Ohio Republican General Assembly, and Mike DeWine, the governor, the Republican governor of Ohio, vetoed it. Now, the, the the General Assembly is about 60% Republican, so they'll override the veto. But Mike DeWine is a Republican who wants to be a statesman. He wants to be accepted. He doesn't want to be condemned by. I mean, he's at a point in his life and career, I guess, Rev, where it financially makes more sense, and I guess it reputationally makes more sense to be in good standing with the cathedral. And if DeWine goes along with this radical bill of not allowing a parent of a minor child to alter the sex. I mean, imagine that conversation. Child, minor child and parent go to a, I don't know what kind of doctor you go, and are there sex change doctors? I mean, is it an OBGYN? Is it a pediatrician? Who does this? I mean, when you've got a minor child, who who orchestrates the ordeal of having a sex change operation on a minor child? That would be something the medical community could answer, certainly, um, not I. But Mike DeWine, Republican. Professing conservative says, kind of introspectively, eh, I'd rather be loved at Harvard. I'd rather be loved at Yale. I'd rather UCal Berkeley invite me to give a commencement address because that's a more lucrative path than standing tall with the anti intellectuals and the, um, the ignoranus of, you see where I'm headed? I mean, that, that's, the, that's the way the debate is framed as we speak. Take a break, back in a few. our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jim and Florence, good morning.
3: Hey, good morning, guys. So children belong to parents as long as the parents want to abort them or chop little Johnny's penis off. But the children don't belong to the parents um, if the parents don't like uh, teachers reading homosexual propaganda to them in, in kindergarten. So... Uh, Didn't that Ohio governor receive what about $400,000 from hospitals that profit from the mutilation of children? I think he did, right?
0: It's a little better than 500,000.
3: Well, excuse me. I bet I stand corrected, Ken. I stand corrected. (laughs) Um, There is a subcommittee hearing in Columbia this week. I think it might actually be today. I don't know if you remember, but I called about the atrium health issue up in North Carolina. They're they're quoting some law in North Carolina to keep uh, certain information away from parents of children that are age 12 to 17. Um, luckily, our state uh, uh, already had a bill in, um, in the state house uh, to correct that issue and not allow that to happen. So um, if, if Mike or Jay or Philip are listening and they know somebody on that subcommittee hearing, if they could call them um, and encourage them. So we'll find out where our polit- our local politicians stand on this issue very quickly about uh, the relationship between children and parents. Um, but they are after our children. It is very clear that they are after our children. Um, and Ken, I, I, I know we've kind of had this back and forth, and we probably agree more than we disagree. But in this instance, Parents need your help, Ken, and I don't mean just you, but I mean the, the whole the whole idea of parents, um, you know, not wanting to, you know, parent and, and wanting the government to step in. Well, this is how we need the government to step in. There is a role for government. There is a place for government. We need to protect children. But we also need to protect children from parents who wish to do them harm. So I, I would encourage um, that subcommittee to do the right thing. Thank you, kids.
0: Thank you. Appreciate that, Jim. Um, let, let's let's ask this question of Josh and Rev, and I'll ask our listeners, because I do believe that, and we spent a good bit of the last hour talking about elite universities, and, and that kind of drifts off into the cathedral and the monolith and those in charge and – you know, the, um, the elite universities, well, that's unfair. The Ivy League. I mean, the elite universities are about 20 or, or 25. The Ivy League is eight, but it's the Ivy League plus. Uh, Vanderbilt and Duke would be somewhat elite. Um, I mean, if you're a good old Southerner, you would say Vanderbilt and Duke are elite. If you're above the Mason-Dixon line, you say, ah, they talk a little bit. But anyway, um, UCAL Berkeley, uh, New York law, University of Chicago law. But there, there's some off the beaten path. Elite universities that have uh, academic standing and reputations, but but the connection I try to make and the reason I went down this road is very few of us understand behind that curtain. I mean, m- most of us didn't go to Harvard, didn't go to Yale, didn't go to Princeton, didn't go to George Washington, didn't go um, to to MIT. So, so we speculate, we form opinions, and I guess to some degree, I'm guilty of helping you form your opinion. I mean, this happens to me a lot. I mean, I'll go to the gym, and somebody will bump into me and say, hey, you kind of made sense to me. I mean, I've never thought of that, but you made some sense to me about what you were talking about at the gym yesterday. One of the trainers came up and said, hey, such and such, we're hoping you were in here today when he's in here because he had a question about something you were talking about yesterday. So I accept some degree of responsibility. Now, I don't try to tell you what to think or believe. Please understand, I mean, that's the first uh, shot across the bow in 2024 of that sort. I mean, I don't. I'm not here to force you to believe anything. I'm not here to 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 make you think a certain way. That's not what my job is. I've never ever thought that it was my job to to convince Dave Baker that my way is the right way, the only way. Josh, my way is the right way. No, I have a view of the world. I have a a perception of things. Uh, when I have. I mean, we talked about gut and instinct in one corner, analytics and data in another corner. When my gut and instinct overwhelm me to a point of, hey, I know I'm right here. I mean, I, I can't, I can't solidify it with data, but I know I'm right here. I go looking for data. So, so when I began, uh, you know, the week all thinking about, okay, why are we in such a bad place? Because America's in a bad place. Forget the eggheads with economic indicators. America's in decline. I mean, it's in significant decline. It's 33 trillion dollars in debt its economy is manipulated and distorted by government and ancillary forces that aren't in it for the good I mean the common good is very secondary to what some of these some of these people want so when we start talking about elite universities and education within and we talk about the decline of quality of person who go into the elite universities and I use the example of there's somebody who scored 1500 on the SAT their valedictorian of West Florence High School They didn't get accepted to Harvard because somebody asked them, was gender dysphoria a mental illness and is, uh, you know, is chromosomal science real or there are only two genders? And the elite universities are not interested in that person because they don't fit the mold. That person obviously has some foundational belief that comes from somewhere and, and they believe and they're willing to say that gender dysphoria is a mental illness and that man is man and woman is woman, and we're uniquely different, and it's the only two sexes that exist. But that's not the kind of person that, that you know, the Harvards of the world want on their campus. The Yales of the world want on their campus. Why? I don't know. Why, Josh? You could answer that better than I. Why don't Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, MIT, UCAL Berkeley want that sort of person, young person, on campus?
5: Um I do think because they have set this liberal standard which is you know it's it's not only that Is
0: it liberal or godless?
5: Both. I think it, that's but kind of But you would agree oxymoron. I think you would
0: agree that liberal is not necessarily godless. I mean liberal politics can be based on a philosophical ideological bent in big government and it it's not mutually exclusive of a belief in god. You can be a liberal and have a profound belief in a creator, your interpretation of the word is that we are our brother's keeper. I can't do it all myself, so let's let government do some of that. I mean, I think there's a a way to be both. So so when somebody says those godless liberals, I think there are liberals who aren't godless. You you see where I'm headed? I don't think necessarily liberalism is a reflection of godlessness.
5: Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. I do actually— I I would have completely agreed with you a few years ago but in essence um I don't I do think that you know if you define like you know you you can have a liberal who believes in a creator whether that's Allah or whoever but if you're a Christian I do think that you will uh be conservative and and, and in the truest sense because I do think that we are transformed so by Christ
0: yeah, well, I mean, respectfully, I just, sure. I just disagree with
5: maybe you. maybe on like economic issues. But I do think on these social issues like homosexuality, transgenderism, I think if you have a liberal stance on those and you call yourself a Christian,
0: that's all you're doing is just calling yourself one rather than being one. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there.
1: Joe in Florence. Good morning. Good
9: morning, guys, and and Happy New Year. Um, One of the most disappointing examples of hypocrisy that I've experienced was when Bruce Springsteen said that if Donald Trump were elected, he was going to leave the country. Um, I I, I think that's very hard for me to comprehend because Bruce Springsteen has always purported to be for the working man, and and he certainly doesn't have – one of those elite Ivy League educational backgrounds. I mean, he's blue-collar, kind of like the way I grew up, and and that's why I I guess I started identifying with his music. But I remember one thing back in the early 80s. um, There was one music critic who felt that Bruce Springsteen's whole act was a big (laughs) put-on. He felt that this whole blue-collar, working-man, hero kind of thing was just nothing more than a marketing positioning that hadn't been fulfilled by anyone since Bob Dylan. And so I'm beginning to think that maybe that this person was – at the time, I was incredibly offended and defensive of Bruce because I thought he was speaking to me personally. But I'm beginning to think there may be a little bit of truth to what he's saying because uh, it sounds like Bruce Springsteen's audience – of working people are in many ways the same audience as bruce's and i just uh i don't know that that maybe bruce is just sold out to the elites i don't know but anyways just thinking about that when you're talking about hypocritical uh, kind of behavior thanks guys
0: thank Looking you Joe. Pre- a great year with y'all thank you appreciate you listening and appreciate you your calling so what do you gonna say about that what do you say about that he's right I mean, I think Springsteen has
1: admitted in some of these later uh, shows he's done and he's been, you know, introspective and reflective and everything. He, he kind of basically admitted that, that it, was, it was all kind of an act.
0: So is that him coming clean under his terms? I think so. I mean, if you watch Springsteen on Broadway, he says you are looking at a man who has become wildly, his words, not mine, wildly and insanely successful writing and singing about things he knows nothing about. I made it all up. Reb believes that's his way of, under once again, not being forced to answer the question. Because I saw Bruce being interviewed by the BBC during the Trump years. And the BBC reporter said, Bruce, everything you've ever sung about is relatable to the Trump voter. And Bruce squirmed. Yeah, that he didn't like that. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. In other words, Bruce, well, how many of your fans voted for Trump? Nearly all of them is probably the answer, and the, the majority of I mean, Outside of that, you know, um, the um, the the cool thing to do is be a Springsteen fan on Wall Street. I mean, I get that, but, but Bruce doesn't sing anthems about Wall Street bankers. I mean, he attacks Wall Street bankers and financiers and capitalism and whatnot. Um, I mean, I, I think Rev will give me this. Some of the uh, talent's not exclusive of hypocrisy. I mean, if Bruce is hypocritical he's not the first uber talented guy to be that um red believes that all of these people at some point in their existence begin to deal with mortality and legacy mm-hmm. and and maybe bruce began thinking hey i've been kind of a con man i mean, the majority of my fans who don't do the deep dive believe that i worked in a factory you know and, and i and i've lived a blue collar existence now bruce bruce during the um the Springsteen on Broadway says that the majority of my songs are about my dad. You know, my dad did work in a factory. My dad did struggle with, uh, with money and finance and my mom had to help us along the way. So, you know, some of that, you know, um, the struggle of the American family, he he watched his father deal with that very personally and struggle with, uh, with dealing with it. But, but I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I do believe that, um, that Bruce has been marketed, a certain way now now Reb believes this and i'll agree you don't market springsteen now unless he says okay i mean in the early days i would imagine if if the if the first manager of the beatles said don't get a haircut they don't get a haircut but but 10 years later somebody said they don't cut your hair screw you we'll cut our hair when we want to so if bruce is being marketed something other than what he really is that's him take a break back in a few damn it joe right (laughs) i I wonder we're we're cruising along talking about godlessness and liberals and you know um socioeconomics (laughs) and and so much other stuff out there to debate now now he's gonna
1: make you defend your guy we're talking about save
0: adolescents from uh experimentation act that mike dewine has signed into law when joe began talking rev began smiling oh yeah and the more Joe talked, the bigger the smile got on Rev's face. I wanted to hear how you It responded. was a little diabolical. It was a little disturbing, Josh. I mean, you couldn't see it because of the situ- the way y'all are situated right now. But it was a little bit, I mean, when Clemson, I remember several years back, Clemson missed a field goal against Pittsburgh. Or Pittsburgh may have made a field goal. Clemson fans would know better than I think they may have missed a field goal to, um, to lose the game this back when they were kicking everybody's butt. And they were at home, if I'm not mistaken, playing Pitt. Pitt made a field goal to Clemson. Anyway, um, when the kick either went through the uprights or went to the left or right of the upright, I started laughing. And my wife walked into the room, I'm watching TV, and says, that is the most evil laugh I've ever heard in my <laughs> life. I mean, that, that was diabolical. Well, the Rev's smile was very similar mm. um, to that. You enjoyed Joe's call. I did. Because <laughs> you think you figured it out. Well, you, but it's easy for you to be, you, you're not a big fan. You didn't travel all over the place chasing Springsteen concerts and listen to every true, word and true and, and try to understand the lyrics and they mattered. And you're right. I mean, th- th- there's some guilt that I think Bruce has, um, for trying to inspire young people, uh, especially trapped in rural areas. He talks about small town, America and lost opportunity and, the, the, the hopelessness, you know, of the, the, the working stiff and, and it is very relatable to the Trump to the Trump movement. You believe, and and and, Rev said this before I even thought about it. Rev said, "I'm telling you, man, this Springsteen on Broadway deal is him coming clean under his terms. He's not going to let anybody do it for him. He know he, he knows he's artistic enough to kind of put together the uh, the coming clean or or the um, what am I trying to say here? The um, the admits." Under his terms and conditions. Sure. I mean, you believe that for several years.
1: I I have, without a doubt. I mean, he's getting older. Doesn't know how much longer he'll be performing and such. He's fabulously wealthy. He's controlled his message probably as good or better than anybody in the public eye that's that successful over the over time, right? He is—he's
0: created that narrative, but now what is the narrative, Ray? What what is the persona of Springsteen? Well,
1: you think he is exactly what he
0: sings about. Where's blue jeans and boots?
1: That's right. I mean, think about the picture on Born in the USA. I mean, you know, with the flag, and the and the jeans, right? I mean, that's your image of Bruce Springsteen. Just got off work at the factory, but that's not him. He is an elitist, and here's where it gets interesting to me. Okay, so we know he hates Trump, and it makes him feel good to. You know, proclaim his
0: anti-Trumpism. He fancies himself as an airline. Right. You know how I know that, Josh? Because <laughs> he tells everybody when he's departing. Right. It's I not mean, you an airport, You've you been to the airport, United Flight 7011, uh, departs at 945 from, you know, gate or terminal such, gate such and such. Springsteen Airlines is departing. De Niro Airlines is departing from. Y- <laughs> y- you say that's his way of publicly expressing his frustration with the Trump movement.
1: Right. No question. But, but the question, and, and this goes back to Joe's call, okay, he, if he's a hypocrite, what does he really think of the typical Trump voter? The people that he sings about are probably overwhelmingly lo- more likely to support Trump and this movement, the America First movement, right? So what does he, we know he hates Trump because he loves singing that with trumpets and fanfare and everything else, you know. So what does he really think, honestly, of those people, of us? Does he d- have disdain for us, too? Even That's though, so interesting. Even though you have spent how much money going to concerts to see him and people that have bought his music over the years and, and and love him as an artist? I mean, what does he really think? Because he sang
0: about those people, and he offered those people artistically some degree of hope. I mean, there's a way out of here, right? Um, I told Rev during the break, I mean, I listened to a lot of Springsteen during the break because I meditated and— gathered myself and rested, you know, my mind. I got away from politics for a while. I mean, if you're a Springsteen fan, there's a song, The River. And I actually sent the lyrics to about eight or ten friends of mine who don't care much for Trump but understand the energy. I mean, they, I, got, I got a good friend of mine, um, grew up fairly affluent but grew up in a small town. So, I mean, he grew up in an affluent house, but he grew up in a, in a very blue meal or a blue collar and working class town. Um, in other words, Josh, when he went to the grocery store, he didn't bump into a fluency. It wasn't Georgetown or La Jolla. You know what I mean? It was um, this rural town, South Carolina. So when he goes to the grocery store, his family had done well, but everybody in the store probably struggled. So he was well aware of that. I mean, that, that's socioeconomically, we know that's the Trump voter. I mean, it's the working man and the woman. They are overwhelmingly in support of Trump. I sent uh, this line out of the river, Josh, then I got Mary pregnant. And, man, that was all she wrote. For my 19th birthday, I got a union card and a wedding coat. We went down to the courthouse, and the judge put it all to rest. No wedding day smiles, no walk down the aisle, no flowers, no wedding dress. I mean, that's the Trump voter. I mean, it's it's a a rural American, you know. uh, I mean, in this particular case, and Bruce wrote this song about his sister who got pregnant, uh, you know, in high school. When she was in high school, this is kind of his tribute to her, you know, making her own way. He says... You know, my sister never asked for anything. I mean, she knows I could if she asked, but she's never asked for anything. She's taken care of herself, been married 50 years, um, but, but he wrote this song as a tribute to her. And like Rez says, those are the millions of people who have loved his music, but would walk over hot coals to vote for Donald Trump. And I think he does find himself in a very complicated uh, place. And I think Trump has added an ingredient and his artistic existence that he never saw coming. And if you're a serious man, now, if you just are in it for the money and to hell with everything, it doesn't matter. But if you're a serious and thoughtful person, you're naturally going to struggle with that. I mean, you're going to have to. If you're a serious, if you're not serious, then there's, you know, you move on. It is what it is. I mean, this is the very shallow world we live in. But if you accept Thinking about it, you've got to resolve that,
1: and you, that's why I'm curious as to what he really thinks. I mean, if the the overlap there between his listeners and his fans, and you know, Trump voters, yeah, they, there's a huge overlap, I'm sure. And what does he really think of those
0: people? And, and you and I will never know. I think Springsteen or Braille is closest we'll ever come yeah. to hearing him. But once again, he's a control freak. All those guys are, right? I mean, you would accept that. All no, those once guys you reach are a certain headlines. level, I mean, they're yeah. all control freaks. I mean, you know, I'll tell the story. But I'm telling it under my terms. I mean, I'm not going to tell it by getting ambushed by some reporter. But um, I mean, he was very uncomfortable when the BBC reporter said, um, you know, you sung about all these working life experiences and factory jobs and, and blue-collar towns and situations. And, you know, no wedding day, you no know, walk down the aisle, no fire, a union card. And come on. I mean, is that real or not? And that's very real to the Trump voter. Very real. Um, to the Trump voter, eight four three six six one zero nine. Now you got me all goofed up. <laughs> now I'm all emotionally invested in in these things we're um, we're talking about. Josh, you made a comment. You got a congratulatory call, and you rushed in here and told Rev and I that was a tell. Ken call, That was a tell. Josh, good job, outta boy. <laughs> um, Josh says that. See, Josh, I believe that in this linear scale, I think you've got liberal, well-intended, believes in government sympathetic to government, leveling the playing field. I think that liberal drifts off if he's not careful or she's not careful into socialist. Wow. I mean, if government did that, why couldn't government not even ask people to round up on their water bill? And I want to say this again for our late bloomers. It's 8, 15 in the morning. Um, the city of Florence made an egregious decision, in my opinion. And this show is full of my opinion. So I've offered up an opportunity for anybody associated with the city council to come on the airways, and I'd love to have you in the studio and explain why you felt the right thing to do for the residents and the consumers of the City of Florence Water Department, because it's both city and county residents. It's not just—I mean, the City of Florence doesn't just provide water services to city residents. The county residents also, at times— or part of the um, paying for the city's uh, water system. So the city of Florence and its county council and mayor, city council and mayor, decided to pass an ordinance that allows you to opt out of rounding up your bill to the nearest dollar if you don't want to help less fortunate people pay their bill. In other words, you don't call the city of Florence to opt in and say, hey, I want to be a part of helping people who need help. No, the city council decided to lock you into that deal, and you're in it unless you call the city to opt out. That, my friends, is egregious. That's not the role of government, the fundamental role. Charity is voluntary, right? I mean, if I choose to help a charity, I don't even like going to a grocery store and asking, do you want to round up to the nearest dollar to help these children who need medical attention? I mean of course I want to help those children who need medical attention, but I don't want to be forced to do it. I want it to be a voluntary exchange rather than an involuntary exchange. I understand the idea, the premise. I understand why a liberal would believe that is the right thing to do, but it's not the I mean it's not the role of government to force me by some ordinance, to help other people pay for their bill because you think I should, not because I think I should. And the city council said to its water customers, we believe that Dave Baker should round up his bill to the nearest dollar to help these other people who don't have as much as Dave Baker pay for their water bill, not because Dave Baker thinks that's the right thing to do, but we as city council believe that's the right thing to do. And if this were satellite and radio, I'd have a more colorful word. <laughs> the best I can do is egregious. That is egregious. And somebody from city council needs to come on this radio show and explain to our listeners why they felt that was the right and appropriate thing to do. You are a liberal. You believe government should level the playing field. But that is a bridge too far. Uh, I mean, that's making... Dave Baker. That's forcing Dave Baker to be charitable in the name of government ordinance, and that's just. I am totally one thousand percent opposed to anything remotely resembling what the city of Florence. Um, did. Well, it's only eleven dollars and eighty-eight cent. Well, it's my eleven dollars and eighty-eight cent. It's Josh's eleven eighty-eight. It's Dave Baker's eleven eighty-eight. And Dave Baker might, might want to give the eleven eighty-eight to his food pantry at church instead of helping somebody square up their water bill. It's kind of a I mean, there's a beauty in this. I mean, imagine if you're the city of Florence and you're having a funding issue because of delinquent water bills. I mean, think about it. It's pretty ingenious. You clear up a lot of the delinquent water bills by forcing people to subsidize paying someone else's bill. (laughs) So, So the offer stands at 820 on a Wednesday morning. I'd love, and we'll put you front of the line. Tomorrow or Friday, uh, we'll get you on the air and you can explain yourself. And I'm not here to ambush anybody, but I think the public deserves to know why our elected officials felt that was an appropriate action, because I absolutely do not. Let's go to the phone. Jeff
1: and Chesterfield. Good morning.
10: Good morning. Amen, Ken. Don't hold your breath. I doubt you'll get a call from any of that crowd. The reason I called, uh, yesterday you mentioned Kayo Yarbrough had passed away, and I got a good story to tell you about Kale back in the 80s. I, I don't know if it was 84, 85. He, he won two uh, Daytona 500s in a row. Well, one of them, I think it was when they were doing the qualifying, he flipped the car up in the air and, I mean, it was just a, a spectacular wreck. And, uh, you know, he came back and he'd for the race or whatever, but I was working in Chirot and I, I, I took Kale in a bed against the guy at work. I, I took Kale and gave him the whole field. And he couldn't believe that I did that. But I just, I mean, I had a confidence in Kale. I just knew, I just felt like he's going to win this race. And sure enough, I won the bet and won the five bucks. But I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> I took Kale against the field and won the bet. So, you know, I, I got fond memories of Kale Yarbrough. He was a hard charger. And I have a lot of respect for that man. Good uh, deal. Thank you so much.
0: Good deal. Yeah, you're from Chesterfield. i of from Pamplico. He was one of us. I mean, he was a local boy done good. And, uh. And he was our guy. I mean, it, it, growing up, Cale Yarborough, he was the closest thing I knew. Hey, there's a celebrity that lives right down there. There's a celebrity that lives um, over there, and he was our celebrity. Now, somebody texted me yesterday from my hometown and said, we knew of Kale all our lives. Some of us got to know Kale a little bit, and I'll treasure that one experience I had. Um, I mean, obviously, the race pool every Friday at A Builders was a ritual. I mean, an absolute ritual. You're talking about trading stocks. I mean, we trade drivers. I'll give you kale and two dollars for Jeff Gordon. I'll give you um. I'll give you. A, I'll give you a Dale Earnhardt and four dollars for Bill Elliott, depending on what track it was. And I mean, that is so much. I mean, it was um statistical analysis, good old boy style. Take a break. Back in a few. New Year, same problem. Health insurance is complicated. It's expensive. Everyone's situation is different. Um, there are a lot of options, but the options are real, real expensive. And I feel the government controls the majority of those options. If they're the, if you're under the age of 65, you're reasonably healthy. Call Christian Levis. I'm not going to try to explain exactly what he can do. He'll do a much better job of that than I, but if you're under the age of 65, you believe you're paying too much for health insurance. You probably are. Call 839-888-3970, 839-888-3970, or go to the website realchoicehealthcare.com. Let's go to the phone. Jacob
1: in Florence. Good morning. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Could I talk
11: about the state of colleges and universities in the country? You sure could. Um, So, Sadly, we're seeing how a lot of these institutions are becoming uh, indoctrination centers for for the left, and uh, they promote anti-Semitism. Uh, the most recent uh, bit of news came from uh, Harvard University. Yesterday, the uh, president, Claudine Gay, she was uh, forced to resign. And it's something that had to happen uh, you know, for, for the sake of uh, credibility, right? Harvard has lost a lot of cred- credibility. It used to be where Harvard was viewed as the premier institution of higher learning in this country. You know, the equivalent of Oxford here in the United States. Uh, Harvard has taken a incredibly big hit, and uh, and what's upsetting to me is that Claudine Gay, she was forced to resign. Not because she couldn't take a stand against anti-Semitism. It was because she plagiarized 50 pieces of work. Now, that's very embarrassing. I mean, if a student plagiarized, you know, one or two uh, letters or, you know, um, essays, they they would probably be expelled from school. Harvard kept this lady on board as president of the university. What what does that say, right? It's embarrassing. And. I mean, so as a parent, why, why would I even send a child to to an institution like that? You're 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 going to spend anywhere between two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to three hundred thousand dollars for uh, this type of education. It's absolute trash. I'd send my son to a, a trade school, some technical school, where they can learn something useful. This is this is just it, it is just upsetting, but going back to the point of Claudine Gay, uh, she was forced to resign because she she had plagiarized and uh, not because of uh, her inability to take a stand against anti-Semitism. Uh, that's upsetting to me. And that, that should tell anyone in, in the listening audience that't don't, don't, uh, don't view universities as institutions of higher learning. They're indoctrination centers for the left, they promote hatred, they promote communism, and uh, it's not even worth your time. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I know I, I went off. Well, you're good. You're good. Thank, thank you, sir. Appreciate things.
0: that. Appreciate the call. Uh, I mean, the the, the, uh, the story of being allowed to condone anti-Semitism and not lose your job, but plagiarism is kind of an institutional, I mean, in other words, uh, you know, there, there are certain things you just can't do and plagiarism in academia is one of the things you just can't, you can't do. They were willing to forgive her for a couple of examples of plagiarism, but I think others arose after the fact. Um, in other words, she was free and clear of being anti-Semitic. I mean, being anti-Semitic was not going to get fired or not going to get her fired as president of Harvard because there were a lot of other checks and boxes. She was diverse. She was liberal. She was woke. Um, I mean, she she had a lot of criteria that some of these— elite universities and and i've landed here and i've had to go back and apologize to some folks because i grouped and i'm bad about this and i think people in general are guilty of this i am very guilty of grouping people uh in 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 larger groups than we probably deserve or painting with too broad a brush would be a better analogy um to use and i've gone back and read and try to better understand we did a a podcast with a good friend of mine dr fred carter out at francis marion university and that came up You know, uh, universities and academia and college presidents and whatnot. And Dr. Carter said something. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not um, breaching trust here. He said it on the podcast um, because I was talking about elitism, and he said, you know, yeah. I mean, I I would agree in some of these elite universities, there's a uh, a note of prestige that is involved. But he talked about arrogance. I mean, he just felt that some of these college presidents at the Harvard, Yale. Dartmouth, Penns, UCAL Berkeley, George Washingtons of the world, they were arrogant. I mean, they were just so full of themselves. Look at me and where I am and what I've done and the rules that apply to everybody else just simply do not apply to me. And the board at Harvard agreed to that. I mean, the board at Harvard basically said, we have an anti-Semite as our president, but look at all the other things that she is. So we'll forgive the anti-Semitism. And she basically didn't condemn genocide. I mean, when you really think about it, she went further than being anti-Semitic. She said that the university policies of bullying and speech did not apply unless someone acted upon some of the, um, some of the beliefs and standards they held. And, and basically, I mean, it would have been until somebody commits genocide, then I'm not going to condemn that, that person. And I believe the First Amendment protects their, their freedom of speech. I mean, that's unusual, but that didn't get her fired. But but in, th- in the traditions of academia, plagiarism is kind of a um, an unforgivable sin, and they were willing to do that once or twice or three times a lady, just not as um just not a hundred times or fifty or sixty times as uh, But Dr. Carter had an interesting observation, and he's a college president from a non elite university. In fact, I think Francis Marion would probably be uh, the, the the opposite of an elite university. The majority of their kids at Francis Marion, to first-time college students, So I mean, they're not bringing an arrogant and elitist attitude to FMU. Dr. Bolt's here on Wednesdays. You guys have gotten to know him a little bit. I don't think he's quite the elitist. Uh, you know, an Andrew Jackson uh, <laughs> student of Andrew Jackson politics and philosophy um, grew up in Buffalo and went to the University of, of Tennessee. Not that there's no shame in going to, growing up in Buffalo or going to the University of Tennessee, but I, you don't think of elitism or arrogance. Or the rules don't apply to me when you when you say that. But but here's my problem, guys, and it goes full circle. My issue is not that the kids at Francis Marion or Carolina or Clemson for that matter. I mean, I, I would agree that probably the bigger university, the more grants they receive, the more tiptoe, if that's a word, they have to be around some of the politics of, of America. My problem is how many kids graduate from these elite universities and end up having enormous authority over our media, control over our government. Ivy League universities make up, or graduates of Ivy League universities make up about less than one-tenth of one percent of America's population, but they make the decisions for about 30% of the media and 35% of government agencies. They're not one of us. So why would we expect them to do things in the best interest of we the people, take a break. Back in a few, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I feel like I've done Josh wrong today. I mean, it doesn't matter to me, and I'm not guilty at all. But I just feel like every time <laughs> I've kind of opened the door to give him an opportunity to express himself, I've just kept on. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's almost like I look at Josh and he's like, he's almost finished, and it's my turn now. And then I never finish. I just keep going on and on. And Rev says. It's almost time for a break, and and the next thing you know, Josh was going like, come on, man, really? Do you I mean, really you ever kinda... finish? I mean, yeah. Well, that's a good <laughs> one, one. One of these days I'll be finished for good. Oh, I'll oh. assure you of that. <laughs> um, let's go to the phone. There's always more words to say. Well, and then things to ponder yeah. and pontificate upon. Sure. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Hello, Bob.
12: Hey, good morning, guys, and happy new year. Uh, uh, a quick Cal uh, Yarborough funny story. Back in the 80s. I, I was flying home from Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, one night, and that was back in the days when they had that little, that little tiny turboprop that uh, serviced uh, Eastern Airlines. And uh, I walked out on the tarmac, got on the plane, and who's sitting on the plane but Kale Yarborough? And so I sit across the, the aisle from him, and uh, right before we took off, a lady in her. I guess it was a three or four year old little boy got on the plane. So we took off. And we're headed to Florence. <clears throat> he and I are just talking, carrying on. And uh, right outside of Florence, the pilot comes on the radio and says, uh, I, I apologize, but we're going to have to divert to Myrtle Beach. We got to pick a passenger up there. So we, we diverted, <clears throat> landed in Myrtle Beach. Well, you know, it's hard to expect a little three or four year old boy to, you know, to. Uh, to hold it for an hour and a half and this little boy is just begging his mom I gotta go to the bathroom and uh, the, the lady got up and asked the pilot said can can we get off here and let him go to the bathroom I said no ma'am nobody can leave the plane so he made her he made her go sit down so we passenger got on the plane we took off headed to Florence well about halfway to Florence that little boy just he had ants in his pants couldn't hold it anymore and uh, kale, leaned over and motioned that little boy over. He whispered something in his ear. And that little boy went up behind the cockpit, and he did his business right there on the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> that was the funniest thing. I laughed my butt off for months over there. Yeah, I
0: guess if a NASCAR legend gives you permission, you're good to go, I
12: guess. <laughs> that's exactly right.
0: Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one. Oh, nine, three, seven. And that kind of confirms, you know, my belief that he's one of us, you know, and, um, not, not many one of us is or all time. Greats. Let's go to the phone.
1: Sam in Darlington. Good morning.
13: Good morning. Uh, I want to push back a little bit on, on, uh, something I've been hearing. I, I think I heard it a little while ago. Um, the calling the, pro Palestinian protesters on college campuses like like at Harvard and other places I I heard uh, I, I saw on television you know a clip of the of the questioning in Congress uh, of the president of Harvard and these other universities by uh, representative Stefanik of New York and the impression I got was that Stefanik was just doing a political talking point kind of takedown of these people. She was saying, you know, apparently the protesters were saying Palestine should be free from the river to the sea. And Stefanik says, you know, that's calling for the genocide of Jews. Well, no, it's not really calling for genocide. I mean, maybe some people think that, but but you could have freedom of, I mean, the... In the West Bank and Gaza, the Palestinians have been seriously oppressed uh, for a long time. They don't have, you know, voting rights, and yet they're under the control of— uh, they don't have—they can't vote in the government that controls them, which is the Israeli government. And uh, it's—to uh, say they could be free, you know, it could be—they that could have, have some dignity and— peace and, um, and, you know, without killing all the Jews. And, and it's also true that a good many, I mean, a significant number of the students at these elite colleges are out there protesting are Jewish students. You know, they are, they are upset at what Israel is doing, and rightly so. Um, so, I,
0: What is I Israel think... doing, Sam, that, that you say rightfully so?
13: They, they have been treating the Palestinians like we treated the American Indians, you know. So, I mean, I, we, we're not any better than them, but anyway, they, have, they are cleansing the land. They're trying to do an ethnic cleansing to get all the Palestinians out is what they're doing. And, and they're being brutal about it.
0: And you're, but, but you're painting, I mean, I, I'll push back on that a good bit. To me, you're painting the Jewish people with a very broad brush when you say they're trying to force all the Palestinians out? Um. I I just think we got to be careful. And you and and I, I mean, we probably disagree some here. I think we got to be real careful in painting with that broad a brush when we say, and you've heard me say, the Russians, the Chinese, the conservatives, the liberals. I mean, the the world has turned into a place where it's so sound and we lack the curiosity to go explore the underbelly, you know, of why— these situations, we find ourselves being nervous or worried or concerned or thinking about about these situations. I don't disagree that there's some mischievous between some of the Jews and some of the leadership in Israel toward the Palestinians, but I think the majority of Jews would 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 be interested and be willing to live peacefully amongst Palestinians.
13: Well, I uh, I think that. In, in Israel, it used to be like 50-50 uh, as far as, you know, there was a very strong opposition to to uh, the kind of, you know, historic hegemony that, that Israel was exercising over the lands they had conquered there in Palestine, and uh, now I, I guess it's down to 30 percent, I don't know, in Israel, you know, there, there's this, but, you know, there's nothing like 30 percent in this country. Of people who are objecting to to the, the, the way Israel is, the way the government of Israel and, and the, the far right, you know, Netanyahu and, and his his supporters, what they're doing. I know some Jews in this country and, uh, you know, Americans, and they're upset by that. They think that.
0: Do you look at this? And I, this is kind of an interesting. I mean, this gets in the weeds in a hurry. I mean, this really. Does do you look at the West Bank and Gaza Strip as somewhat Indian reservations in the United States? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, yeah, there's some that do that. I mean, I don't, but there's some that do, and I think they have very legitimate points to make. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Once again, I mean, that, that is the the two issues, and they're fundamentally different than one another, but but so entailed and tangled, complicated that I've studied since. Going on 12 years of a radio show is the Fed and the relationship between Palestinians and Jews. I mean, I, I don't know the right answer to the Fed. It is unbelievably complicated, but it's less human. But, but when you start talking about human beings, and I mean, it, it's just the, the relationship the Jewish people in Israel have had with Palestinians and the guys of the West Bank and King David of the Ottoman Empire and the British Mandate. I mean, it's unbelievably complicated. And I think, I mean, this is pretty arrogant of me to say, I think most people don't have any idea what they're talking about when they begin discussing what's right, what's wrong, what should be, what shouldn't be done in regards to, um, I mean, the majority of Christian Americans would say, I mean, it's prophecy, it's scriptural, and I'll bless those who bless you, curse those that curse you. Okay, I'll go along with that. But there's a whole lot more kicking Ah, uh, where that comes from. Take a break. Back at a few. 843 661 Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Nope. Okay. All dropped. Okay, the call dropped. 843- they didn't we wait. think we've got the phones fixed. Am I right? Yep. I mean, when I left here, I issued a demand. I mean, I never demand anything of anybody. But I said, guys, I ain't coming back if the phones don't work. <laughs> I mean, did we host a call. Yeah, that's exactly in? how that went. I mean, did we call. No, you know better than that. I mean, I'm saying I don't do that at all. Um, I said, "Hey, man, let's get these phones working, <laughs> right?" Because it frustrates and aggravates um, when they don't. And yesterday yep. we had a problem. If someone called line one, then the rollover didn't work. We Correct. think we've got that rectified. And that, and
1: that was the last because we changed out equipment right right as we went on to to our Christmas break and vacation. We changed out phone modems and stuff like that. So we've got all brand-new equipment. Our signals are all checked out and everybody's satisfied with. And the last lingering thing was our rollover lines weren't working, so we couldn't take multiple calls at the same time. Got that addressed yesterday. So I hope we have no more erroneous call dropping.
0: Uh, I hope. And I hope one of your New Year's resolutions is to call Wake Up Carolina. I mean, you, you folks, I mean, I bump into you everywhere around town. And you have so much to say, and it's good material. Your opinions are good opinions. And I think the public would enjoy hearing from uh, some of these callers. So I hope one of the New Year's resolutions, um, some of you have, I don't want to say drum up the courage, but just you know, be, be willing to call in and publicly say what you believe about whatever it is we're talking about, or some of you do, It doesn't matter what we're talking about. You're going to talk about what you choose to talk about, and I'm certainly okay with that.
1: How how many people tell you on a weekly basis, hey, I almost picked up the phone and called the show the other day? It never fails. I hear it all the
0: time. All the time. It It, never fails. I'm like, do it. Do it. That should be. We're hoping that's one of your New Year's resolutions. Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan, good morning.
14: Good morning. Some people are so misguided. Uh, I don't think people like Sam even understand that the Israelis have been using the dome to keep from being killed for 20 or so years. And it's just like, let me give you an analogy. If you're in Pauleys Island, and someone moves in beside you, and they've got a really radical father who starts bombing your home, kills five of your family, you're supposed to stand there and let them kill you or bomb your house because the mayor of Myrtle Beach says, "Hey, you can't, you can't fight back. You can't fight back." So that's my analogy, and that's exactly what's happening. And I guess Sam did not even understand that there was no, there was a ceasefire in place on October the sixth and on October the seventh. The Hamas terrorists invaded Israel and killed 1,400 people. I mean, doesn't he understand that?
0: Thank you, Daphne. We got a hard break. Top of the hour. We'll be back on the other side. I'll try my best to allow Josh to express himself in the last hour. Back in a few. Okay, I need um I need I need some psychology. I need some <laughs> psychiatry, right? Um and I do believe for the first time in a long time, Rev's like, okay, let's make heads or tails of this. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument we made earlier, and Joe called in and talked about the potential con that Bruce Springsteen has been the balance of his life. And it's not I mean, I'm not reaching to talk about Springsteen. I mean, you know, I'm a fan, been a fan, going to probably die a fan. The point is the Trump voter. I mean, to me, that's the interesting political moment. Who has written and sung about the stereotypical Trump voter more than Bruce Springsteen? I mean, you can't think of anybody. uh, You can't think of anybody. His entire career has been writing and singing about things that we believe are relatable in the Trump voter's world. Right?
1: At least a huge overlap.
0: A, a, a tremendous overlap. And, and I, t- I told Rev during the break, so is Springsteen arguing? I mean, if we're arguing that he potentially is a con man, and that's, I mean, Joe didn't call him a con man because Joe's a fan. Fans don't call their <laughs> their heroes con men. Well, he didn't. He's not exactly as he appeared.
1: <laughs> I think
0: hip- hypocritical. You yeah, know, well, I mean, the, they're hypocritical is our word. Yeah. He's not exactly as he appeared. Um <laughs> And it kind of came clean in some of the But but I want to go back to, because because Rev and I were talking during the break. There are some who believe that the the support of Trump is based on naivete. I mean, he's a con man. How do you not see him for what he is? Um, so, so there's a little uh, mutuality here between wondering whether Springsteen's a con man. And by that, I mean... Trump is a, a, a Manhattan real estate developer who made a bunch of money, married a supermodel, has all this, you know, the, um, ah, the, the, the allure of wealth, um, the, 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 the publicity of wealth. I mean, I, I know people who like Trump because they believe. I mean, I know some black voters who say, you know why I like Trump? Because some of you white folk will try to hide your money. He's proud of it. I mean, he's in your face with it. I mean, that's just kind of a weird anomaly. But like Rev said, is, is some of this because, I mean, is, 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 is Springsteen's disdain for Trump based on, I mean, there's a story out there about building hotels and casinos on the Jersey Boardwalk and Bruce Romances about the New Jersey Boardwalk. So like Rev said, is it Trump or is it the movement? I mean, how, how do you disparage the people you've written about all your life or is this more about Trump? Right. And and I asked Rev, I said, okay, let's stay on Trump for a second. The majority of never-Trumpers believe that Rev, Josh, and I aren't smart enough to see him for what he is. I mean, you've heard
1: that a lot. And you read posts from the, quote, elites. There's like, you know, this con man, how does he have all these people conned into supporting him? We well, don't I mean, understand.
0: Okay, but here's my question. They appear
1: smart, but I guess they're not.
0: Josh, do you believe... That Trump is to some degree a con man. Sure. Okay. I mean, I've said it this way. I think Trump is a is a mockery in a world of mockeries. I think I think it, there's an old saying: "Don't be BS a bs'er." You know, you can't be BS a bs'er. Um, I'm making a mockery of the mockery. Um, I mean, if you're full of lies and deceit and shenanigans and seeking publicity, this guy's just better at it than anybody. I mean, they've met their match, so to speak. Uh, the, the machine that was built on a certain deceit and, and misleading. I mean, they met a guy who's just better at it than they are. See, I don't believe that the never-Trumpers understand the way we feel about Trump. I mean, I don't think Rev wants his daughter to marry. I mean, if he had a daughter, wouldn't want her to marry somebody like Trump. I mean, I don't think Rev reveres the the characteristics and personality traits of Donald Trump. But he stands for, he embodies, he symbolizes, he's a manifestation of a political movement that Bruce Springsteen sings about. So if Trump is indeed kind of stumbled up, because I've asked this question a million times and still don't know the answer. And I'll ask both of you what your opinions are. You don't know the answer. I don't. Did Trump fly his personal jet to Alabama early in 2015 or late in 2015, early 16, late 15 and, when he lands in one of these off the beat Montgomery, Alabama, um Dothan Alabama, I mean they, you remember he went to a football stadium early in sixteen, and it was I mean I remember thinking to myself, man, you're making a big mistake. I mean, you're a political neophyte, you're a smart guy, you've done a lot of developing, made a lot of money, but you don't have political rallies in football stadiums because they look empty. I mean, they just look empty you you have you have political rallies in smaller venues where they're standing room only and people are waiting to get in the door. And I remember thinking at early 16, that's one example of him not knowing what he's doing. I mean, he wants bigger and better. I get it. I mean, he does. That's him. Bigger plane, bigger coattails, bigger cars, bigger bank accounts. I mean, that's his. Bigger's better. But I remember thinking to myself, I've done this, Donald. You're making a mistake. You're going to a big football stadium in Alabama, and there's going to be, you know, half-empty stands, and it's going to be an optic. that, and, And he shows up, and I'm like, you ready? I mean, the two-syllable damn. I mean, there, there's two ways to say that word, right? <laughs> right? I mean, there's the one syllable, and then there's damn, mm-hmm. uh, D-A-Y-U-M. Um, and I remember thinking, like, wow, okay. So Not only did he feel it, he had people standing outside. Something's kicking here. <laughs> I mean, something's kicking here that is undeniable. And that's just, uh, there's a, I understand the never-Trumper believing that he's duping us. But I don't think the never-Trumper understands that there are some things we don't take, he says, seriously. There are some things that come along with being a, a, you know, a supporter of Trump that we don't care much for. Is that fair, Josh? Absolutely. I mean, there, there's no—it's not an unfettered loyalty. It's not a blind loyalty. It's not a devotion. It's not a, an obsession that Trump voters have with Trump. Now, I do believe this. In the subconscious, there's an obsession with America first. I mean, he is once again the manifestation of the America First movement. I believe there's an absolute passionate obsession with putting America first again. I mean, there are millions of Americans who believe that our government sold them down the river. I mean, that that is, there is a passionate obsession with that mindset. Trump, mm, I think if you ask people, hey, are you passionately obsessed with America First? Or Donald Trump the most. And I think most Trump voters would say, man, I kind of know what I'm getting with Trump. I mean, I'm getting a mixed bag. I'm getting a lot of different things with that guy. But, but I do believe that if we can catapult this political philosophy or movement into the mainstream, it's going to make all of our lives better. And he's the guy than that,
1: lo- that can deliver the goods.
0: I've said it before. I'll say it again. I would have much rather had Seattle Slumber's Secretariat. But when establishment, neoconservatism, liberal, radical is on the menu, he's my best choice. He may not be Seattle slew or secretariat, but he's the best racehorse I can find and still the best racehorse I can find if I'm passionately obsessed with America First.
1: Did he stumble on that? Did he identify and say, here's my path, before he even decided to run for president? That's my
0: question, and you said it 30 minutes ago. Did Springsteen believe there was a market out there that nobody was tapping into? I mean, he's never worked in a factory. His dad did. But did he, via his dad and his life, did Springsteen see this universe of people who weren't being written about or sung about and say, hey, man, i can make a lot of money if I do that. You're right. When, when, When Trump gets off the plane in Alabama in late 16 and looks in that football stadium and goes, damn, it's full. Did he get back on the plane and say, hey, we can go somewhere with this? Or was it an honest representation of how he felt about the body politic juxtaposed to the average, what I'll call the working America first rabid supporter? Let's go to the phone. I know we're, we'll take a little bit longer here, Josh. Let's go to the phone.
1: Larry and Florence, good morning.
0: Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yeah, yes, sir. You're, on. you're on the air. Oh, great. Great.
15: Ken, um, you like going off the scale there a minute uh, on Trump, but it seemed like you got it back on course there when you stated what you said about those uh, fans in Alabama. I think Trump had a plan from the beginning to make America great again. He probably saw the decline that was going on or about to go on, and he came up with a plan, let's make America great again, because America was great. And contrary to popular belief, some people say, well, we had slavery, yeah, but that's in the past. And now African-Americans has more of an opportunity now to be successful in this economy, in this country, than ever at any given time. But yet the far-left people want to make you think that all African-Americans are the victim. But, I'm, you know, I'm an African-American. I'm a veteran. I was on your show once. I haven't called in for a while, but I listen intently to everything you say. And um, good good talk, good good show, Glad you're there because it's a place to vent and say what you want to say when you got something to say. But so you continue to do that, Ken, and I'll be listening in now. Trump is my man, and African Americans are going to be Trump man this year, too. Thank you, so Larry. Thank you you appreciate
0: the well, it. Mean, there's no doubting that. I mean, once again, gut instinct. What does the data say? The data clearly shows that Donald Trump has more support amongst minorities than any Republican ever has. Does it translate into votes? We shall see in November. But right now, the polling clearly shows, this is crazy, Josh, Trump wins the Hispanic vote. I didn't say he's closed the gap. The polling shows today that if the election for president were held by Hispanic registered voters only, Trump wins 39-34%. That's a staggering statistic. Once again, they haven't gone to the ballot box yet, so we don't know what the, what the future holds um, African Americans at a higher percentage are voting for or in favor of Trump and the America First agenda. 843 937 is our number. Yeah, y- like you want to add something here.
5: Yeah, I wanted to say that I do think Trump is in it for the right reasons. I know, you know, people posit that it's ego, which he has an ego. No, I'm not. Just because I think he's not in it for ego doesn't mean I'm denying he has one. But I think at this point, it's, it's really hard to make that argument considering what's been happening to him, what's being done to him. I think, I think at this point for him to get out would be to his advantage. I think he's genuinely in it because he wants to, you know, he's an older guy. He wants to leave the world in a better place than he found it.
0: I believe this, and then we'll take a break. I believe that some of the competitive nature of being in business is beginning to come into play. They want me gone. I mean, they, they, this is how bad they want me gone. This is what they're willing to do to to kind of purge the political system of me and my army, so to speak. And I think the competitive juices start flowing. Um, you can't build that hotel here, Donald. You can't make that a golf course, Donald. I mean, business people are very motivated, and influenced by competition. I mean, there's, I mean, I've been in business all my life. The one thing you tell a business person, you can't do that. You know, that'll never work. I mean, if they passionately believe in something and you tell them you can't do that or that won't work, I mean, you'll find out. I mean, many have made just terrible decisions out of that competitiveness, that, that unwilling to yield, almost say like, why are you doing this? Because they told me I couldn't. Well, they're kind of right. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to do this. Yeah, but they told me I couldn't. Just to prove a point. I mean, you, business people more than any other, and I'm talking about I played sports and been in business. Business people are more competitive than athletes. I mean, I genuinely believe that. I mean, if you had a subset of business people uh, and, and, and athletic people and you gave them some sort of um, personality and characteristic test and competitiveness was what you're trying to find out, business people would be, I think, the most competitive people, a group of people on the planet. And and once again, ref, sometimes it's good advice. You can't do that. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense. And you go home at night and you lay in the, the bed look at the ceilings. I can do that. Mm-hmm. And your wife says, yeah, but it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I can do it. I mean, I, you know. And sometimes that turns into tremendous success. And sometimes enormous failure. <laughs> yeah. But the competitive spirit is what drives a lot of that. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 661 937 is our number let's go to the phone david in the pd good morning
16: hey good morning hey when i think of springsteen i'm kind of a casual fan in a way i was born in the usa uh glory days uh, my hometown uh so called darlington county but didn't he even say back in those days he just
0: did that to make money there's some things he said tongue in cheek but we didn't want to believe it david I mean, you know, the, the, the fans, I mean, you all want to see g- greatness in your heroes and, and the people you, you know, who inspire you, so to speak. Um, but, I mean, yeah, looking back on it, there's been several times in his life he said things, but we always thought it was just him being kind of tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic, mm-hmm. and, oh, he didn't really mean that. When he said he's a phony, he didn't really mean that. I mean, he, when he said he was a fraud, he didn't really mean that. I mean, it's, it's well, always well, about the artistic hey nature of his business.
16: I, I have to say brilliant
0: disguise. But did you say, <laughs> you Ken, that uh, the water at the beach is better than the water in Florence? Man, that's that's from my wife. She's my official, um, well, see, she's my official I, I'll gauge. I'll take her word for it. I'll take her word for it. Uh, you
16: mentioned two names, uh, and you talk about uh, Mike DeWine. Mike DeWine has been a lieutenant governor. He's been a governor. He's been a senator. You, I mean, U.S. senator and United States House of Representatives. So I don't know. I don't know if anybody's ever done that before. And uh, you would have to bring up Bill Clinton and this whatever, this Epstein, and we talk about nickel and diamond people and this and that What government. But I always look at Bill Clinton. When he was governor of Arkansas, that had about 2.3 million people. So if you get a dime off of everybody, you get about $230,000. Well, if you, ha- if you were in the... United States president, if you get a dime off of three hundred and thirty million people, you get thirty three billion. But I'm gonna plagiarize my man ludicrous. These guys are what I call worldwide hustlers. So if you could just get a penny off of seven point eight billion people, you make seventy eight million dollars. So now you see the secret to the Bidens and the Clinton success. You have a good day.
0: Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Um A lot to chew on there. We'll find out later this week. I think at some point in time, that official list comes out, some of that information in the Epstein report. I
1: believe it when I see it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, John Doe 36, just remember that. From what I've read, the Clintons or Bill Clinton. I mean, Hillary didn't go. Bill, he left her at home. Um, Bill, wonder (laughs) why. Not a place for the women, right? Not a a place for the wives. Golf weekend without the wives down Mm -hmm. at Epstein Island. Um, but I'm sure they play golf. I'm sure they, um, or, you know, just other things. They have probably one of these therapy sessions where men get together to reinforce their character team building. Yeah. Team building. Yeah. There you go. Um, you know, masculinity training and things like that. Um, get very comfortable with yourself and who you are and what you, what you believe in. One, one of these self-help weekends down on, um, down on Epstein Island. Yeah. Um, I want to do some digging tomorrow to come back and, and talk about, um, there's been, and sometimes it's not what we're reporting, but what we aren't reporting and it's gone radio silent on Ukraine. The only thing I heard or read during my time off was it might be time for the Ukrainians to make a deal and just understand that Putin's going to get some of this land and is historically confusing. I mean, maybe, maybe not. We should have fallen for that. I wish Rev keeps a list and Josh has added Words that I make up, um, I mean, I think it's 25, maybe 30 <laughs> words. I stand by really 10 or ones. 12. I mean, it's a wonder to me that, I mean, I, I'll give you optimism. I mean, I still think that's one of our all-time greats. Yeah, um, I mean, why hopeful and optimistic instead of just optimistic? I mean, that, to me, that's a, <laughs> an economically way of, um, of using the Queen's English. But, um, but the one thing we've never done, and this is so damn arrogant on my part, I want a board, I told you so. I mean, you know, I don't want a one, hey, Ken was wrong. I don't want that. I I don't want that (laughs) Ken was wrong board. (laughs) I only want the one board that says, I told you so. And I remember when this thing began to kind of evolve, I said, guys, I mean, Putin's not going to lose the war to Ukraine. It's just not going to happen. We're being led, misled. In the believing that Ukraine has a chance to defeat Vladimir Putin and one of the largest armies the world has ever known. Now, I didn't say everything went as Putin planned. I mean, I certainly don't believe that everything went as Putin planned. And I think there's some heroic activity or behavior to defending the homeland. Of course there is. But, but at times, I mean, there's a reality, a stark reality. In and, and one side of the equation, you've got the loss of human life. And the other side to give it up several hundred acres or, or a couple of cities. I mean, nobody wants to give up several hundred acres. So so Josh, I'll ask you. I mean, of the bad choices, giving up several hundred acres and maybe a couple of cities and and several ports. I mean, you don't want to do that. Nobody wants to do that. And you would argue Putin doesn't have the authority to do that. On the other side is send US troops and help and try to defeat Vladimir Putin, engage NATO, or kill every Ukrainian man in the in the country. I mean, it doesn't it seem to me that giving up some land, giving up some ports, giving up some territory is a little better option than killing every living, breathing Ukrainian in the country?
5: Yeah, of course. Okay.
0: But, but the American neoconservative said, well, I mean, Putin's got to be stopped. It doesn't matter how many Ukrainians have to die. It doesn't matter what NATO has to do. We We must stop Vladimir Putin. And I think we were just unrealistic, just unbelievably unrealistic. And how many Ukrainians died in the name of defending? It's an honorable way to die. I mean, I I don't want to die that way, but it's honorable to defend your country and your homeland. And nobody's defending what Putin did. And nobody's sympathizing with what Putin did. But it's called the mayor of Realville. And the mayor of Realville said in one side, on one side of the equation, you're going to kill every Ukrainian man in the country, but we're going to die in honor. I mean, we're going to die in honor. And the other side says, hey, Putin and Russia are going to take over some of these properties, some of these territory. They're going to have access to some of these ports, and that's just the way it's going to be. I mean, to me, that was a much better option and alternative. But America, in its imperialistic way, said, well, I mean, that's that's not what we think needs to happen. And I I just think it's another example of the American neoconservative movement misleading the American people, painting a picture that was obviously, obviously inaccurate. Let's go to the
1: phone, Barry in Chira. Good morning, Barry.
17: Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken. Uh, who, so, so the Epstein thing is about trafficking kids and and all that good stuff. Um, so, who's the leading trafficker of kids in the world right now? What country?
0: Ah, uh, China.
17: Negative. United States of America. Eighty five thousand kids that's come across the border are unaccounted for, Ken. 85,000 kids that have crossed that southern border are unaccounted for. They don't know where they're at. They don't have an address. The addresses that they they go look are strip club, the middle of the field. They can't find them. 85,000. And nobody's saying anything about it. The southern border is the worst, is is the, the most important issue we have for this country. It's our sovereignty, Uh, we're being invaded, 18,000 people, 10 to 18,000 people a day, okay? That's a division a day in the Army. That is a division, Ken, for all the veterans. That is a division invading us a day. Invaders, not people ready to work. These are invaders. So until we get serious, we need to shut down the government. I preach this every day on Twitter. We have to shut down the government. We, no more money for the southern border. All, all Biden is doing is using NGOs to, to process illegals into America. The UN is doing this all over the world, and we need to wake up. This is the replacement. I know I keep harping on this, but nobody's taking it serious. These people will replace us, y'all. Who's the number one target for the United States government? MAGA. MAGA is the it is the number one target for the United States government. You can listen. they tell you every day that white conservatives are the bad people. So who do you think is going to replace it? It's not going to be other Americans that are going to come and replace you. They're going to bring in outside forces to replace you. So wake up, people. Y'all need to call your congressman and tell him to shut down the government. I, I, I tweet at him every day, and Russell's doing a great job. I just don't think they understand. everybody understands how serious this problem is. They're trafficking kids, they're pedophilia, and, and we're worried about Epstein's list coming out.
0: No, no, we do this every day. Y'all have a great week. Thank you, Barry. The one thing, and, and I can place it in a real-world context, I was off last week and spent a good bit of time down in, uh, at the beach. And one day I woke up and went to. I mean, in my family, you've heard me say this, they've got this joke about, you know, if daddy's not here, he's probably at Home Depot. Um, there, there's a Home Depot down at Burl's Inlet that I frequent because there's always something to do. And I run down there, and my wife says, You look at what an excuse to go to Home Depot. I mean, okay, there's a hinge that's broke. You know, there, there's a knob that's torn off. I mean, there's some reason for you to go and plunder around in there for two hours um, and hold tools and look at them and twist them and turn them. I mean, she kind of laughs at that. Okay, he'll hold a skill saw and twist it and turn it. <laughs> You know, look, <laughs> shake it, you know, like, wow, yeah. okay, you've done that. I mean, you know what I'm <laughs> yeah. talking about here. But um, but I noticed one day, I was coming back from uh, my excursion, and there was a car behind me that had, uh, I think it was Hispanics. Um, they were not white Caucasian um, European Americans. I'll just leave it there. And I remember thinking to myself, I mean, they kind of like tailgated me. You know, like like real, real close behind. And, I mean, I didn't know what they were up to. I mean, they were real close behind. I'm looking back like, wow, okay, real close, real close for a long time, real close for a long time. And it dawned on me how many people are in this country that we don't have records on. And, I mean, I, yes, I'm being a bit judgmental. And, yes, I'm being I, I, I'm, – I'm guilty of stereotyping. There's no doubt about that. But for about three or four minutes while this car was behind me, I'm thinking to myself, if I mean, what have they had to go? What do they have to lose? I mean, how do you track them? What? What if they shoot me in the head and drive off? I mean, they, is there a record of them being here? Is there any consequence? I mean, how does law enforcement go about finding these people? And I'm admitting I'm being judgmental. I am totally accepting that I'm being judgmental and I'm stereotyping to the nth degree. But I'm a human being, and I noticed certain things. And I responded a certain way. and for the first time in my life, I mean, I've read about it. I understand the three hundred and sixty thousand illegals that came into the country in the month of December, the most ever in American history. I understand how many illegals are here talking about eighty five thousand children that nobody know where they are. What are the consequences to someone, what what is the I mean, if I know that there's a record of me and my behavior and where I live and what I do, I'm less inclined to create or or, um, commit a criminal act, right? I mean, I know there's a pretty good chance i get caught. I mean, if I'm not real careful. But what if I'm here and nobody knows I'm here? Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows what I'm doing. I'm not supposed to be here to begin with. And I have this little tendency about me to commit crimes. I mean, forgive me. Am I being Stupid. No, I think I'm being very aware of my surroundings and saying, wow. I mean, that makes me a little more nervous than the normal set of circumstances. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there.
1: Roujon in Darlington. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen, and a happy new year. Same to you, sir. I haven't
18: spoken to you guys. I haven't spoken to you guys since last year. <laughs> True. But, uh, hey, listen. <laughs> hey, Barry's 100% right. Uh, I mean... The thing about it, the thing about it was the first time I heard of, of replacement theory was around 2009, 2010, and what it, and it was it was being talked about in the context of African Americans being replaced by, uh, you know, South Americans. I mean, Mexicans and, and and Latinos and things like that because. Our birth rate had gotten so low that they were the Democrats were so afraid that that uh, our voting block wouldn't be as effective as they wanted it to be. So therefore, they turned to this replacement theory and, and said that we'll we'll go to Latinos, and and so uh, then uh, the Latinos became the largest uh, minority uh, group in America. So now you know they, they've seen that 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 the replacement theory works against the African-American. So now the Democrats and the progressives are going after, you know, the Latinos so they can replace the white conservative voting bloc as well. So this is not something that... uh, They've they've been playing chess for a long time, and we as Americans, whether it be African-Americans, even Latino-Americans and uh, Caucasian-Americans, need to understand that is not the fact that they they, uh, they, 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 want to replace us. No offense or bust about it, so they can stay in power. And that's 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 their main game, staying in power, controlling, and doing everything, uh, everything possible. And I'm seeing them take little 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 tidbits out of the, the Stalinist uh, playbook. Uh, you know, you know, take the kids, control their minds. You know. Uh, control their land, you know. Have the government control everything, you know, and especially voting. You know, he who counts the votes, <laughs> it's not it's, he usually wins. So that, that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing, and, it, and it's, it's sad. I've watched this. I've watched this for so long, and I've been preaching this since 19, 1980 about you know the evils of the you know the Democrat Party, especially in the black community. And nobody's listening, and now finally, and I've, I've been saying that, you know, the Caucasian community needs to get a set of cojones and stand up. To anyone that calls them a racist, they need to sue them for defamation. But nobody's nobody listening, and now everybody's starting to see it, and I'm like, well, damn, I've been saying this for years.
0: Thank you, Rujan, so- appreciate that. And, and I, you know, I, the only thing, I, the only acknowledgement I'll offer is, if they make the white male conservative obsolete, who do you blame all the problems of the world on? Um, you know, so yeah, be careful what you what you ask for. Let's go to the phone. Someone else is there.
1: Jeff in Florence. Hey, Jeff.
0: Hey, good morning. Happy New Year, guys.
1: Hey, Jeff. Happy New Year.
0: Um, you know, it's
19: it's it's funny to me this conversation. This great replacement theory. Um, we're a nation of immigrants. Uh, I, I challenge you to go back and listen to Ronald Reagan's speeches about immigration and and hear, you know, his thoughts. Um, I know you guys don't like Reagan now. I get it. You know, you think he was bad. But he was a great American president. Um, the other
0: day. Well, Whoever who said <laughs> yeah, nobody liked said Reagan. I don't, I
19: don't know where you got oh, that from. I, I mean, like, well, I mean, you know. <laughs> If you look at the modern Republican Party, Reagan wouldn't even identify. Well, I mean,
0: the last person to give a commentary on the modern Republican Party is you. You have well, less credibility I, I, than anybody I've ever heard on the modern Republican Party. But continue, sir.
19: I, I will. Um, like, nation of immigrants, it's not just platitudes. The founders knew it. They wrote it into the Constitution. Um, yeah, Hell, Donald Trump, that's the only way he finds wives. Uh, is immigrants. Um. Jeff,
0: is 360,000 people <laughs> coming to the country illegally in one month of immigration? No, it
1: isn't.
0: It's nonsense. It's,
1: that's invasion. You, you your party's good, for that, Jeff.
0: Your party is an open border party. Your party doesn't believe in a nation's yeah. sovereignty, and your party believes yeah. that immigration is equal to 360,000 illegals invading a sovereign nation in a single month. That's what your party okay, endorses and stands have, for. So stop okay, being critical and judgmental about yeah. the Republicans opinion on immigration.
19: So what have they done about it? Nothing we don't have a good We don't have a good immigration policy. What We've got good immigration policy right We don't, tried. We don't we, have we either. Do
0: not, no and, and and I think you'll agree with me here. The, the, the Democrats have historically believed that the conversion of illegals to legals is to their to their political benefit. The Republicans so the have long Republicans. been in bed with no. the corporate America apparatus, and they believe the distortion of unskilled labor is good for the corporation's bottom line.
19: Can I can I ask you a question? Sure you can. What in New York what would New York look like without the Italian immigrants?
0: Uh, but you're talking about immigration. I'm what, talking about what, an invasion. What, what, the Republican Party has historically embraced immigration. I think we still embrace immigration orderly illegal. and lawfully entering our country. You, I, see, you said we need new policy and laws. I think we need to enforce the laws we have. And I think we the don't. reason we we've not is both political parties have kind of made a deal with one another. You you believe that it's to your political benefit to let all these illegals in. Our supporters believe it's their bottom line's best interest to let all these illegal ends, and the American people have suffered as a result of
19: uh, well, so I mean, you really want to look at it. If you if you have laws and you don't want them to work, what do you do? You, you just don't. You, you
0: blame the other party. No, it, them. Well, I mean, I I, I just disagree, I and mean, I think that's a legitimate conversation to have. Are yeah. we funding border security?
19: Yes, yeah, we're not. Are, are we are we spending our money and getting good return? On so our how rent? much more money would it not. take
0: to secure our border?
19: It's 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 the border could be secured in a way that doesn't need a big wall. You know that. I know that. I'll agree with that. I'll I'll totally agree with that. The border wall is needed in some areas. You'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. We need a way to process and stop people from coming unregistered. Would you agree with that? Totally. Okay. Let's work towards a solution. Let's not platitude this thing to death.
0: But but the but point I'm trying to make is Jeff, I don't think either party is interested in a solution. I think it's in both of their best interests to allow to continue to happen what's happening today.
19: But America does benefit from this and don't that's where you're this, you know, and I'm I'm not trying to this is that xenophobia you don't think that there were people in New York who felt like they were being ingraded? But, I mean, uh, uh, but, but if you want to go uh, down... Invaded by the Italians? Sure. do think people in Boston felt like they were being invaded by the Irish?
0: Does America benefit executing everybody with an IQ under 75? I'm going to say no. Of course they do. It makes us better and smarter. But we don't do that. There's, there's some humanitarian element to everything we do in America. I don't disagree with some of the premise of your debate. I don't. I mean, I fundamentally, I'll listen to some of that you're talking about funding and what the priorities need to be on border security. In fact, if you call earlier tomorrow, we'll have longer to discuss a debate, these issues. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.